All right, everybody. I do believe we are live. Welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. I am your host, Lev Polyakov at Lovepo on Twitter, and today is a very special day. Here with none other than the great and powerful Dr. Jason Riza Giorgiani, PhD, writer of Prometheus and Atlas, Lovers of Sophia, Iranian Leviathan, so many amazing books, including the new one that's going to be the particular subject of today's conversation, uh, Closer Encounters, which is an amazing book as far as getting my mind, and uh, I'm sure everybody who's a big fan of Jason here, to go beyond whatever it is that we're used to considering is reality. And Jason, you always make me think, and it is a great pleasure to have you here today, and of course, we have the great Gnostic informant, Neil, with us today, uh, wearing uh, gray. That's a very interesting color choice. But uh, everybody here, I'm very excited about this great conversation. Be sure, if you want to support the channel, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, hit the bell. The bell is incredibly important for the algorithm. And share this to everybody you know. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Giorgiani, I would like to start this conversation off by talking about the uh, megaliths, because uh, Graham Hancock uh, is somebody who has been very uh, inspirational to me as far as thinking about what exactly is out there that we don't know. He always refers to people as having amnesia, a species uh, with amnesia. So when it comes to these structures, the way you presented it in your book was not how I used to think of them. You presented them as being uh, very totalitarian. And as far as why exactly that is, I think that would be a good intro towards this uh, discussion. So uh, let's go from there. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you, Lev. Uh, it has indeed been long overdue, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to it being the first of many future conversations. You know, Graham Hancock was also significant in terms of my uh, I don't know whether you want to call it intellectual development or whether perhaps the platonic term anamnesis is better, uh, the, the unforgetting that Plato talks about in his dialogues. Um, and, you know, it took me some time to really wrap my mind around uh, the nature of these megalithic structures from the standpoint of art history and what it says about the evolution of consciousness. Um, aesthetics is, of course, one of the major branches of philosophy. And when you look back at somebody like Hegel, who, you know, GWF Hegel, who's providing a, an account of the evolution of consciousness, uh, the transformation of the human mind over history as it's reflected in various successive social structures, political systems, frameworks of knowledge, you also see Hegel attempt to give an account of the changes that he's already noticing in terms of artistic styles throughout history. And what they say about uh, the metamorphosis of the human mind as it gains increasing self-consciousness. And as we you know, individuate, um, and come out of a kind of unconscious collective mindset and toward the, uh, toward the achievement of personal freedom and, and a capacity for profound self-reflection. And so, you know, there, there's an account that you can give of how classical architecture transforms into 
medieval Gothic architecture, and then what modernism represents with respect to that. And if you set these megalithic structures like the Osirian at Abydos in Egypt or uh, Sacsayhuaman, uh, Ollantaytambo, these various uh, megalithic walls in uh, South America, the, the Kalasasya structure at Tiwanaku, which Arthur Posnansky believed was possibly as old as 15,000 BC. Um, if you set these structures into the context of this kind of an understanding of art history as an evolution of consciousness, I think that oddly enough, the conclusion you come to is that they represent a cast of mind that believes it has achieved perfection uh, and that there is no longer any possibility for civilizational development. So, you know, if you look at like uh, brutalism and, you know, abstract modern art, there is a sense in which there's a statement being made about um, every iteration, every permutation of consciousness having already been passed through, right? So, you know, what you see in terms of the exploration of symbolism, iconography, and, and various frames of meaning in, let's say, symbolist painting, then going into, you know, uh, deconstructing that in terms of the contents of the subconscious and surrealism, right? All of those can be seen as preceding stages on the way to the kind of perfection that you see in uh, like Mark Rothko and brutalist architecture. There is a sense in like Rothko paintings or brutalist architecture that an end has been reached. And that end has very much to do with the way in which technology has transformed painting, sculpture and architecture. So that, you know, once you had photography, uh, there was an attempt to surpass representationalism in painting, right? And to explore the subconscious. And then even beyond that, to go into totally non-representational forms like uh, abstract expressionism. Um, and uh, by the way, in my book, Lovers of Sophia, I have this whole essay where I go into the fractals that have been found within Jackson Pollock paintings layers of fractals within fractals that certain uh, computer scientists have been able to discern in these paintings. And it's really an enigma how he was able to do this, um, because really you can only replicate it with a computer program. In any case, there's something about brutalist architecture, about paintings of the type that you know Rothko produced that have a kind of closure of development to them, which is why only postmodernism remains on the other side of that, which is why on the other side of Rothko or brutalism, you only see deconstruction, or at least, you know, uh, part of the plague of nihilism that we're suffering that Nietzsche prophesied is that we've only seen deconstruction on the other side of that type of modernism. And then I look at the trilithons at Baalbek and, and the, you know, uh, similar megaliths uh, with, with, you know, absolutely perfect edges in the Osirian at Abydos, you know, and these jigsaw puzzle designs uh, of the walls in, in uh, the Andes. And it seems to me that we're dealing with a civilization that believes it's achieved all that can be achieved uh, and that it's arrived at the most perfect form of expression. 
And there's something else about these structures that's deeply related to that, which is a fortification of consciousness. You know, even like a blade of, of grass, you know, a, a, a weed can't come through the cracks. Or rather, there aren't any cracks in these structures for a, a weed to, uh, you know, uh, slip through. You can't slip a razor blade between these joints that have no mortar in them. And so there's a kind of um, calcification and fortification of consciousness there, where, you know, you, ha you have a civilization that not only believes it's achieved perfection, but it's also attempting to wall itself off from uh, chaos and uh, to, to basically fortify itself in the face of um, anything unpredictable, uh, anything that would put the lie to its having achieved this putative perfection. There is also the alleged uh, use of a giant cosmic calendar. If we're talking about the positioning of the pyramids, if we're talking about the Sphinx facing the constellation of Leo at a certain time, these are things that lead some people to believe that the people who built these things really cared about marking down time in terms of uh, cosmic time, in terms of galactic time. And... Uh, I'm curious, although I kind of know what the answer is based on your book, I'm kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about the reason why these great spans of time and astrology were so valuable to the creators of these uh, specific megaliths. Yeah, so this is going to be really far out, but, you know, the devil is obviously in the details. People have to read the book. Um, initially, you might come to... Graham Hancock's expositions on a subject like this, or you know what what Robert Baval found, uh, the Belgian engineer Robert Baval, in terms of the mirroring of the constellation of Orion uh, onto the Giza plateau in the form of the Great Pyramids, and the you know um, mirroring of the uh, the Milky Way uh, in the uh, Nile River, uh, and the way in which the Sphinx looks at its counterpart, the constellation of Leo at dawn on the spring equinox in 10,500 BC, you might come to all of these pieces of evidence initially with a kind of um, new agey, hippie awe and wonder, right? At uh, the expanse of consciousness of a people who could have engineered um, in such harmony with the stars. But actually, if you really think about it, uh, the high precision, the unforgivingly high precision with which all of these megalithic sites around the world are aligned with the stars expresses the ultimate form of totalitarianism. These people had created a civilization which saw itself as a microcosm of cosmic order. And it's entirely connected to, as you suggested, the zodiacal calendar. And so two things are going on here. One, I think that the reason these people needed a 26,000 year long calendar, uh, in, in which one great year is 26,000 of our years, is because we're dealing with a time traveling civilization. And, you know, as anyone who's even rudimentarily familiar with time travel understands, if you send a ship at close to the speed of light and then have it return to the Earth, many hundreds of years would have passed by on the Earth in the interim, right? I mean, the Planet of the Apes scenario. So if you're dealing with that kind of technology, you're regularly making 
trips at near the speed of light and then coming back to the earth, you're going to have to figure out a way to structure a civilization where there's stability for not just hundreds, but thousands upon thousands of years, right? I mean, it's not just that the planet has to be there when you get back. Your society has to be there when you get back. So that's an extremely stable form of society you're going to have to engineer, not just physically engineer, socially engineer. And so then when it comes to the social engineering of it, well, you know, I was extreme, although I've always been open-minded to ESP and PK and, and various types of parapsychological evidence, I was always very resistant to looking at astrology. But I kept coming up, uh, I mean, I, evidence for the efficacy of astrology kept being thrown in my face. And finally, I had to take a more serious look at it. And in particular, you know, uh, I looked at the research of Michel Gauquelin, a Belgian uh, scientist, who, um, study, who did a study of correlations between the, uh, the planets in certain people's natal charts and the professions that they wound up going into, like soldiers or athletes or entertainers and so on and so forth. And he's produced astronomical odds against chance uh, uh, correlations between the, um, you know, the dominant planet in somebody's natal chart and the type of career that they go into. Uh, and so... I suspect that this society, which somehow built with 1,300 ton stones at Baalbek and, you know, 400 ton stones at Giza, this society engineered a psychosocial control system, which determined, tried to determine people's personality based upon when they would be conceived and when they would be born. And it was an extremely hierarchical caste society, uh, and it was planned down to the, um, down to the uh, detail, level of detail required to be able to, on average, turn out certain types of people at certain times. Okay, so that, let's say, if you were going to be in the soldier caste, you could only be conceived at a certain time of the year so that you would be born at a certain time with a certain type of natal chart. And they created basically a, a vast uh, system of psychokinetic influence using the, the stars as symbolic structures in order to, uh, in order to as a kind of uh, software mesh interfacing with consciousness in order to guide different types of people into different roles in this society. And that when, let's say we want to call it Atlantis, like Plato does, when Atlantis was destroyed, this system persisted on an etheric level, albeit in ruins, so that its echoes are still with us today on a psychical level. People who've studied psychokinesis in the field of parapsychology are familiar with an idea called a PK field. So that if somebody who's an adept at psychokinesis engages in intensive psychokinetic influence in a particular place, uh, the field of influence that they set up may endure for some time after. There's a lag effect. And then there's also the question of the fact that um, if Atlantis was a historical reality, and I believe there's overwhelming evidence that it was, that's a civilization that endured for tens of thousands of years longer than the one that's in our history books. 
namely this so-called history that we have that goes back 5,000 years. Well, that's nothing compared to, you know, an Atlantis that potentially went back tens of thousands of years. So the imprint of that type of social system on our subconscious is so deep that astrology still works, even though there's no objective truth to it. It's a system that was set up in order to shape society, and it still has a hold on our subconscious. And therefore, you still see the kinds of correlations that somebody like Michel Gauquelin came up with in his research on, you know, career paths and natal charts. I want to get Neil in on this. And also a reminder to everybody, we're going to be doing super chats at the end, unless you have a super chat that is very pertinent to whatever is being discussed at the moment. And also don't forget to like, subscribe, and patreon.com slash break the rules, uh, support the show. So Neil, any thoughts on the astrology? Yeah, my question for Dr. Giorgiani is, is this where you see, for example, the idea of the 12 constellations being prominent throughout cultures that go from China all the way over to the Native Americans and the, they're all using the same numerology? And my and a part two of that question is, I just recently found out that the ancients gave your birth chart, not based on when you were born, but based on when you were conceived. And the Suetonius talks about Augustus, who is called the son of God, the 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 illustrious one he's the like he he's the, the king of the world basically he's a capricorn he was conceived 10 10 months before he was born in september which brings him back to december 25th i just found this out my mind was blown away so what's up with these um equinoxes and solstices and what's so powerful about them well that's now a really a compound question but to take the first part first uh yeah, obviously, it's why we have basically the same. I mean, you know, there, there are nuances in Chinese astrology that are different from, you know, uh, Greco-Roman astrology. But there are way too similar, way, the way too many similarities in these astrological systems than there ought to be. Uh, if we were dealing with a bunch of disconnected civilizations that evolved on their own, as our conventional history books taught us, you know, when we were uh, in school back. And I don't know what they even teach these days. I don't think. I, I doubt that anything resembling history is even taught these days, considering the dominant discourse in, in academia. But, you know, uh, certainly this narrative that we were fed back in the day uh, about all these independently arising civilizations is a bunch of nonsense. And you can see that in these astrological systems. And just before I go back to this, the last part of what you were saying, you know, one thing is that there's no reason, physically speaking, why astrology should work. OK, at least I mean, I can understand the moon having an influence on human uh, behavior. Right. I mean, moon, moon madness is a real thing, as anyone who works in an emergency room knows. And there's no mystery there. I mean, considering the percentage of water that constitutes our body uh, and the tidal effect of the moon on the Earth's oceans, that stands to reason. But there's no reason why the planets gravitationally should have the, the effect that they do on shaping human personality and let's say the career path someone would take, let alone these arbitrarily determined star constellations. I mean, you're going to, you could have come up with any number of other lines that you could draw through stars to, you know, make for other constellations than the ones that we have. Clearly somebody at one point arbitrarily determined this symbol system and then put it to a certain use, a use which I think included social engineering. You would have a different symbol system on Mars um, and, and again, it could have been carved up a different way, even on the earth. So, so therefore, what it suggests to me is that 
This is something like software that was designed by a group of people at one point to interface with consciousness on a social scale. Uh, and then the last part of what you were saying was in terms of the equinoxes and the solstices and what is all that? Well, that takes us into one of the most controversial subjects in, uh, in my book, uh, Closer Encounters, which is that the moon is artificial. There's overwhelming evidence that the moon is artificial. Wow. And without the moon, uh, we would not have these equinoxes and these solstices. So, you know, okay, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why you would engineer the moon, which is a subject we can unpack slowly over time if you want to go there. And those reasons have everything to do with making the Earth even a habitable planet for a humanoid form of life. Because without the moon, the Earth, for example, would be rotating way too fast for anything like humanoid beings to have evolved on its surface. But it goes all the way to the level of how symbology can be used to manipulate social consciousness. Think about the power that predicting eclipses had uh, in various societies where you had astrological priesthoods that had foreknowledge of eclipses, right? And notice that these eclipses would not be possible but for the extremely bizarre and I don't believe coincidental fact that the moon is one four hundredth the size of the sun and it is exactly one four hundredth the distance of the earth from the sun. So, okay, it was set up that way in order to create the symbol that is the solar eclipse and the predictive device that is the solar eclipse, which can be used by a priesthood to manipulate a society. So, you know, when you ask about the equinoxes and the, and the eclipses, I think it's part of a system that was set up here, a control system. After all, you know, I mean, you titled this program, Who Controls Our Reality? A big part of this matrix of control that we're in has to do with this machine, the, the Death Star that's floating above us. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Levin. Well... I mean, the gears are turning in my head right now. I don't even know where to begin because there's so many different places this conversation can go. One of the things that you talked about in a uh, podcast with Neil had to do with human beings being agents, not of being, but of becoming. And when it comes to these entities like the uh, man and woman I have on the uh, thumbnail dressed in this uh, strange-looking uh, blue outfit with these elongated uh, foreheads and this blonde platinum hair... Would you say that these beings that you attribute to, uh, well, we'll get to who exactly they are, but before that, as far as their quality, their understanding of the universe, their uh, level of consciousness, would you say that these beings are stuck in being or are they still becoming? Because like you mentioned with the animals, the animals are already agents of being. They're not going to get anywhere other than you know what they're used to. Would you say the same thing for these, uh, you could say, evolved entities that we're going to talk about in a little bit? I think there was a very hard fought struggle within their civilization, and it ended with the triumph of a group of people who uh, basically subscribe to the most perfect form of perennialism or traditionalism. In fact, that's kind of a, a back-ass words way of putting it, because their perennialism is the model for 
you know, the so-called perennial philosophy that we find in various human cultures. Our traditionalism, quote unquote, or belief in the primordial tradition that you find in various conservative strains of one or another civilization is, a, is an echo or a shadow of the primordial tradition that these uh, devas, if you want to use the Hindu term for them, or these Olympian gods actually embody themselves. So um, in Closer Encounters, I basically make this argument. Again, it, it's a very empirical case that I make in this book, drawing on research done uh, mostly by very well-accredited scientists. Like, for example, um, uh, when it comes to the question of a, a catastrophic conflict having been uh, uh, fought within this civilization of these tall, blonde, uh, you know, uh, Nordic-looking people, there's evidence that's, that's, um, that's been put together by Dr. John Brandenburg, who was working for a time at Sandia Laboratories, one of the premier nuclear research laboratories of the U.S. Uh, and also he was, uh, he was part of the Clementine Project for NASA. And Brandenburg discovered that there are two sites on Mars, which also happen to be the sites where there are anomalous structures that appear to be artificial, uh, that appear to be man-made, where you have signatures of nuclear war. Uh, there is a, an isotopic um, shift of xenon-129, which you only find on Earth in sites where thermonuclear weapons have been detonated. And there are very large signatures of this in Cydonia and in Utopia, two sites on Mars where NASA has photographed structures that appear to be artificial beginning with the Viking probe in 1976, and where the CIA has sent more than one team of remote viewers. Actually, they sent uh, remote viewers on three different occasions and, and two different teams of them, um, beginning in the 70s and, and then again in 1984, to corroborate the photographic evidence of these ruins on Mars. And what appears to have uh, taken place there is some kind of a nuclear war. I mean, horrific, like to the point where it ultimately rendered Mars the desert, the uninhabitable desert that it is, and tore the atmosphere off the planet. Brandenburg actually said that the scale of nuclear uh, explosions that took place there um, uh, were, were something on the order of, if you took all of the highest yield thermonuclear weapons we had and filled the Empire State Building with them. Okay, so imagine the highest yield Russian and American nukes an Empire State Building's worth of those were dedicated were detonated at Sidonia and Utopia on Mars. Do you think Mars was was uh, populated by humanoids or some sort it of? It was populated by. That's what Joe McMonagall, both Ingo Swan and Joe McMonagall, who were sent to remote view Mars by the CIA, said not only was it populated by I humanoids, just, it was populated by people who looked like Swedes. I just thought of something crazy because Mars is named after the god of war, Mars. If there's this giant nuclear wars happening on Mars, this brings me to my next question. Why do all these planets and, and moons have so close connections to mythology? Like Jupiter is the biggest one. Zeus is the king of the gods. Yeah. Saturn is like the, the ancient king and he eats his children. Like All these planets sort of mimic the, the mythology. Well, Are the, the scientists of aware of this stuff? Yeah, I, I don't know to what it, I'm sure some of the people in JPL certainly are. I mean, going back to the days of Jack Parsons, 
uh, I think that there's been an occult circle within JPL that's very wise to these things. Mm. Um, but certainly in the case of Mars, the mythological correlation is quite apt because a horrific war took place there. And not to lose the thread you know, from, from Lev's question, sure. uh, I think that what we see in mythology and also in terms of what you're saying of mythology and correlation to planets, I, I think that what we see in mythology expressed as the war between the devas and the asuras or the gods and the titans is a war that did take place probably on a solar system scale, but focused around Mars uh, between two factions of a time-traveling human civilization. And if you look at you know uh, how I recount Jill McMonigle's um, remote viewing of Mars in 1984 for the CIA in Closer Encounters, and <clears throat> what I extrapolate from it, what it looks like is that these time travelers who went to Mars to find basically a temporal pocket to isolate themselves from human history on Earth by going back to Mars like 250 million years before the present when Mars was a living planet, right? And settling Mars, building a civilization there that would be temporally isolated from Earth. In other words, would not contaminate the timeline on the Earth. That that civilization fractured somehow. There was a terrible ideological conflict between what mythology has remembered as the gods and the titans. And the faction that triumphed are these so-called gods, these Olympians or devas. And to go back to your question, Lev, their ideology is this perennialist, traditionalist worldview where they believe their society is a microcosm of a macrocosmic order uh, that, that basically their purpose is to bring society in line with Brahman uh, and with Rata, and um, that uh, the way to do that is to build a pyramidal hierarchical society, a caste system where everybody has a proper place and, and there are types of people and they have their designated roles. And that once you achieve this perfect form of society, there's no further development that can take place. There's only decline. And this is a view that we see in Hindu texts, in Greek, ancient Greek texts of the various cycle of the ages which is a cycle of decline. It doesn't get better. It goes from the Golden Age to the Silver Age to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, right? Or from the Satya Yuga of the Hindus to the Kali Yuga of the Hindus, at which point there's so, such degeneration and dissolution that the gods have to come down and refound the system again. Uh, and so, yeah, they, as you put it, have a, an ideology or an ontology, rather, an ontology and an epistemology, a framework of knowledge, that's very much structured around a static conception of being and that's choking off becoming or further evolution, evolutionary dynamism and the continued growth of humanity. Well, uh, you wrote a book. Uh, sorry, uh, not you, but uh, somebody who you dedicated your book to, Jack Parsons wrote a book called Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, where he talks about freedom having one edge being liberty and the other being responsibility. This is something that I want to get into eventually within this conversation. But regarding these particular uh, entities and whether or not they were correct or incorrect in doing what they did, I want to go back to where exactly they were hatched from, but also I don't want to bury the lead as far as my big uh, paradox with this uh, view, which is that wherever they came from would have been the descendants of 
the beings who went back in time to create themselves. Do you see what I mean? Like that becomes the very big mind bender for me. It's a total mind fuck. That's the problem with time travel. That's the problem with breaking the time continuum in your civilization. Uh, It becomes an Ouroboros. That's what it is. It's a snake that's biting its own tail. And it's the snake that it is, is a boa constrictor, which is threatening to, to crush us. Uh, and ultimately, my whole project of Prometheism is to find a way to cut ourselves out of the grip of this boa constrictor, which intends to completely close itself around us while it while it chokes on its own tail. Um, so so, yeah, it is. Um, it is paradoxical, but only if you are stuck within a, a linear uh, chronological conception of time. Well, speaking of that, what do you what is your thoughts on the simulation hypothesis right right so so that's a a very totally apt question here i mean the way that i address the quote paradox unquote that you're pointing to lev in closer encounters is that i say look uh, and i mean there's some empirical preconditions for this okay that i can't just gloss over i'm not just making a completely abstract argument i point to things like the mandela effect there are there are these various instances where People remember, large groups of people, remember events having happened differently from the way that our history books or TV narratives tell us that they happened, right? And the name of the Mandela effect in particular comes from a whole group of people in various parts of the world who seem to remember that Nelson Mandela died while he was still in prison in South Africa in 1991, that he was never freed. He never became this you know, leader of a post-apartheid South Africa and so forth. And there's a whole bunch of these alternate memories that people do have. And Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, much to his embarrassment, a lot of people thought he had really gone off his rocker when he said this, at a sci-fi conference in Metz, France in 1977, uh, PKD came out and he said he believed that these Mandela effect uh, events were evidence for the fact that we're living inside some kind of computer simulation and that the programmers are revising reality. Uh, and he wow. thought that his own, some of his own books, like Flow My Tears, A Policeman Said, which is an account of an alternate United States in the 70s when Richard Nixon, you know, goes into his third term and the U.S. becomes a police state and so forth, or Man in the High Castle, where the Nazis win the Second World War. He said that these were actual memories that he had, wow. that he didn't make this stuff up. He had memories of alternate timelines before they had been shifted by the controllers of the matrix that we're in. And let's not forget Carl Jung, one of the smartest people of all time, thought he he believed that dreams are coming from somewhere else, that you're getting some sort of message from somewhere. And people thought this was so out of character for him to say that. But he really thought that. But given the given the way ESP works, it's certainly possible that a lot of Mandela effect type things happen in a dream state. But before you come back in, let me just close this question with Neil. Um, So my point there was that in Closer Encounters, what I say is, based on Mandela effect, based on um, other things about our, our experience that suggest the computational nature of the universe that we're living in, the way you can explain time travel uh, so as to avert the paradox that Lev is pointing to is that it works the same way that a video game works in terms of saving a past state of play. 
Okay, like in these massive multiplayer online role-playing games, it's possible to save the game at a certain point, then keep playing it in, in one manner, right? But then go back to the saved state of play, which has been archived, and replay this game forward in a different way than you did in the first run or the second run or the third run. So I postulate that we're living in a quantum computational cosmos and that there's something like what the Hindus called the Akashic Record, which stores former versions of our reality, quote unquote, once they've become defunct by being overwritten through you know, uh, time travel, through the effect of time travelers on basically recalibrating a chain of events. So yeah, Lev, go ahead. Or for the uh, Dragon Ball fans who are in the audience right now, Dragon Ball Super, they did a similar thing. When there was a timeline that was not supposed to be there, a new uh, key, or I don't remember what it was, but a new, oh, a new ring, a new ring was created of this extra timeline. And we see this a lot in various science fiction. I know that you are against the idea of there being a uh, multiple amount of uh, universes, an infinite amount of universes, because that would render any decision that we make to be foolish. But uh, back to what we were talking about originally with who these entities are, and uh, we know why they did what they did. But as far as how they did what they did, let's go back to the 1890s. I was calling various uh, people in Iowa and various places, and I'm still on this mission, by the way, to try and find out if there's anyone who still has information from their ancestors in the 1890s who saw a certain aircraft landing down in their field, this electrical aircraft. Because I'm sure if something like that happens, you're going to tell your family and they're going to tell their relatives. So let's see what happens there. But that strikes me as very interesting because we wouldn't really think of the 1890s as being an era when something that advanced is created. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about where exactly this particular aircraft occurred from, who were the people that were financing it, and uh, let's go from there. Yeah, so um, just a brief note, and I'll, I promise I'll come right back to it. Uh, the thing about the many worlds, it's not that it would render our decisions foolish, is that the many worlds interpretation of quantum theory, which postulates an infinity of parallel universes, those parallel universes are branching out every microsecond that there's a, a wave function collapse into a distinct state of affairs. And our brain is made up of quantum wave functions, right? And so it would mean that any decision we make, even pursuing a line of thought, let alone taking a course of action, is made for us in an infinity of parallel universes where we may have doppelgangers at any microsecond, right? Where a this concrete state of affairs uh, emerges from out of this flux of quantum possibilities. And so that's a view that really does negate free will. And it's one of the reasons why I argue against it in Closer Encounters and in other philosophical works of mine. But going back to the 1890s and the airships, right? If you really want to pursue that project, what you ought to do is go to the tens of newspaper reports that there were at the time about these Jules Verne style craft that were seen all across the United States and find the family names of the people who were quoted. Because, you know, they'd get quoted a bunch of people. That, that's newspapers. exactly what I did. That's exactly yeah, what I did. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's sheriffs, there's lawyers and doctors and whatever. And, 
you know, you got to find their descendants and see if the, the folklore has continued through the family lines. In any case, yeah, there are these craft and they were seen all across the country and they landed in people's farms to resupply, to refuel, um, to conduct mechanical repairs. And they were not Zeppelins. We're talking about a period in the 1890s that was a decade or two before Zeppelins became a popular form of travel. Uh, and what people were seeing were nothing like hot air balloons. They were contraptions that could have come from out of the novels of Jules Verne. Uh, and so it's very much a mystery, right? I mean, who the hell was building these things? And if you, you dig into uh, the research that's been done on this, you find that there seems to have been a corporate combine, a kind of a, a transnational corporate consortium based in Austria, Germany, perhaps other parts of Central Europe, um, called NIMSA, uh, which translates as the uh, Nationalist Airship Pursuit and Exploration Project Office. Uh, and the term nationalist in that formulation of NIMSA is aspirational because in the 1890s, there was no German nation. You had a bunch of different countries that were trying to form a, or at least there were elements within those countries who were trying to form a united Germany. Germanic nationalists aspiring to have a united Germany. And so it looks like there were a group of private um, corporatists who had created a, an aeronautical engineering company that sent technical people over to North America, particularly to Texas and California, to try to build these craft, which appear to have levitated through some kind of electrogravitic propulsion. And another thing you have to remember uh, from the context of that time is that it's not just the, the Anglos, the British and the French who were interested in colonizing the Americas or the Spaniards who came before them. The Germanic peoples had their own aspirations for resource exploration and exploitation in the Americas, both North and South America. And these airships seem to have been pursued initially as a means to facilitate resource exploitation, particularly in South America. Uh, but they were built in California and Texas. And they were, according to conversations that were had between, uh, you know, people, property owners, and uh, the, the airship pilots who landed on various farms and, and other tracts of land, the airship pilots told them that the operation was being funded by bankers from out of New York. And supposedly that the, the company responsible for building these airships would shortly go public on the New York Stock Exchange and so on and so forth. Well, when you look back at that time and see, you know, who were bankers in New York who were connected to Germany and who could have funded something like this, you really come up with only one group. And that's J.P. Morgan Chase, whose logo is a swastika and who went on to fund the rise of both fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Uh, J.P. Morgan, together with Alan Dulles and John Rockefeller, were the principal financiers of both Mussolini's regime and 
uh, Nazi Germany's industrial corporate complex. Wow. Would this be something that J.P. Morgan, with his big bulbous nose, would this be something that he would have passed on to the people who came after him? Because he died uh, long before World War II. Yeah, but remember Mussolini, I mean, the fascist movement in Europe far predates World War II. I mean, Hitler was leading the Munich, uh, you know, coup attempt in 22. Mussolini was already in power around 1920. Uh, in the late 19-teens, um, Mussolini and Marinetti were already collaborating. This was, was this nexus of Italian futurism and fascism. So, yes, yeah, certainly the project would have been passed down uh, from Morgan to successors at Chase who were working with the Rockefellers and working with other major families. Henry Ford was another huge player. Ford was manufacturing tanks for Hitler while we were blowing them up on the battlefield. Right. IBM was making computer punch cards to be used in the concentration camps. That's crazy. To help organize the Holocaust. So, and at the same time, he was also putting in the, uh, the Learned Elders book inside of uh, each of his cars, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. It's, uh, it's something like for myself, who uh, comes from uh, Russia originally from a uh, Jewish family, even though I'm not religious, this is one of the things that I really hate the most when there is a totalitarian inclination in people against things that people have absolutely no control over. And it is something that I want to uh, fight against. But with that being said, I was looking at the uh, logo of uh, uh, Chase uh, Bank, and I'm not sure if this is uh, not the full story or not, but it says here on their own site, uh, Chase.com, design firm Chair Mayev and Geismar Associates presented eight symbols, including a sleek octagon they called a simple yet powerful geometric form embodying a strong feeling of motion and activity. And uh, this was something that uh, was pretty recent. So the design itself and the solid blue octagon, I think it was created in 2004. So yeah. that's why... Well, that's an obscuring. It's an obscuring of of a of an older swastika design, and it's, I think it's hardly a coincidence that, you know, swastikas were used for good luck in hunting in Germany, and the word shasa means the hunt. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's that seems rather suspicious to me. There also was oh, a swastika. oh so, sorry, nineteen sixty one. That is the date that it says the Chase logo was created in by this design firm. So that's what I'm trying to find out. Like the design itself, I agree, it does look like that symbol, but it was not done during that particular uh, time when all these goings on were occurring. Well, if that's the case, then the legacy is alive and well, which we know <laughs> from many other things uh, about you know how Chase and Deutsche Bank and, and others of these firms are you know, still involved in engineering geopolitics. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and you know, Henry Ford also had a swastika in his Ford Motor Company logo before, out of embarrassment over, uh, you know, uh, our entering the war with Germany, they had to remove that. In any case, you had these people, the, the, the Carnegie's, Ford, Rockefeller's, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Harriman was another big one. The Harriman uh, Railroad Empire in the United States in the 1890s, who were involved in this um, airship project in some way, in this aeronautic propulsion project in some way. 
And as I point out in Closer Encounters, the same people were also ardent advocates of eugenics. So a lot of people don't know that, you know, Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler in particular, modeled all of the German eugenics laws on eugenics policy in the United States of America. The United States of America in the 1890s to the 1920s was the world's leader in eugenics. Together with Sweden and a few other countries that you'd never suspect, right, were uh, basically leading laboratories for social engineering through eugenics. And if you look at the court decisions made in Britain and the Supreme Court decisions in the United States from that period, you can see that there, there's a, an elite, an Anglo-American elite in particular, that is pursuing the policy of the creation of essentially what they themselves call, quote, a Nordic master race, unquote. And this is where I start to put together a number of lines of extremely disturbing evidence in Closer Encounters that converge on a really horrifying conclusion. Uh, so to take a step back, you know, for a minute and, and look at that uh, conclusion in a big picture way, think about it like this. If time travel is possible, possible, if it's even a feasible technology, right, it's going to be achieved at some point by some group. Right. Somebody's going to invent time, time travel at some point, right? And if time travel is a necessary consequence of developing what we call today zero-point energy technology or electrogravitic propulsion that's based on uh, torsion of certain isotopes, on counter-rotation and electro electromagnetic stressing of certain isotopes, if that kind of propulsion, which gives you uh, basically anti-gravity, also necessarily warps the fabric of space-time, somebody's going to invent that at some point, right? Well, look, I'm sorry to be politically incorrect, but if you look at the different cultures on the planet, the different ethnicities, different, you know, uh, nations and cultures, who were the scientific leaders in the world in the period when such a technology first became feasible? Let's say from the 1890s through the 1940s. It was the Anglo-Saxons, obviously, right? I mean, Anglo-Saxons, whether it's Anglo-Americans or Germans, were the leaders in science and technology in the world from the 1890s through the 1940s. So they're liable to be the ones who invented and then you've got all these elites in America, Britain, and then later in Germany who are trying to pursue the development of this, quote, Nordic master race, unquote, through eugenics. Well, gee, I wonder why it is that so many of these UFO pilots look like uh, seven-foot-tall Swedes from out of an SS recruitment advertisement. Well... That is a very interesting thing uh, that you were bringing up in your book, and you seem to have two different examples of it. There was this uh, couple, I think, a black husband and white uh, wife, who saw people that they described as wearing the uh, uh, Nazi uniforms, while at the same time there were other people who saw the Nordics wearing these blue jumpsuits right out of like a 1980s music video. So... 
that is also an aspect of which, which I know it's kind of a sidebar, but it's a very interesting one for me. If we're talking about these entities being the ones who then developed this technology and went back in time to Mars and so on and so forth, when it comes to how they presented themselves and how they how they dress, basically, if yeah. we're looking at the Anunnaki with their dresses and their uh, weird-looking uh, headgear with the horns on it, and then we have these '80s jumpsuit-style uh, Nordics, and then we have you know the traditional uh, SS uniform or whatever, what makes them decide to go with what particular style and why? Look, I mean, obviously, if you're going to operate in different cultures and, and socially engineer at different times, you're going to have to, you know, uh, adopt different styles. But the, the real question here is, why are there tall Germanic people building pyramids in ancient Egypt and Mexico? I mean, like not in the historical period that we've been told those structures were built. I mean, 12,000 years ago. What the hell were those people doing there? Why is it that the Mayans... Tell us that Quetzalcoatl and his comrades were tall white people with flowing red hair, right? I mean, what is this about? How come this is what's preserved in the records of Manetho, the ancient Egyptian histories about the, um, what do they call it, pre-Pharaonic dynasties, right? The Shamasu Hor in Egypt. Why, why is this all, true all over the planet that you have these tall white civilizer gods, which today nobody wants to talk about because of, I don't know, critical race theory and identity politics and whatever, right? You mentioned the case of Betty and Barney Hill. There are much yes. stranger cases than that. Betty and Barney Hill said, yeah, the, the people who abducted us, they looked like Nazis. They, they straight out said that, well, frankly, they looked like Nazis. There are <laughs> other cases that are even more disturbing. Out and say it. <laughs> There's this guy called Reinhold Schmidt, who was um, an American in Nebraska who had distant German ancestry. He wasn't like a second generation German or anything. He was... You know, there's a lot of Germanic people in America. He had distant Germanic ancestry, uh, this American Reinhold Schmidt in, in Nebraska, who in November of 1957 was taken aboard a flying saucer. And he said, you know, all the typical things, his car failed due to the electromagnetic, uh, you know, effect of the saucer. His car engine died. This metallic oval-shaped craft landed. And, uh, you know, they basically paralyzed him and they brought him on board. And he sees these three men and two women who are all Nordic in appearance. And they're speaking to one another as if they expect that he won't understand them. Because as far as they're concerned, he's just another American yokel. But he knew enough German to recognize that not only were they speaking German, they were speaking high German. What the hell is this about? And then why is it the case that if you look at all of the major contactees of the 1950s, all of whom, by the way, are named George for some peculiar reason, <laughs> or took the name George, George Adamski, George Van Tassel, George Hunt Williamson, okay? They're all advancing these narratives that are racist and fascist. And they have, in some cases, very direct connections to fascist organizations. Like, for example, George Hunt Williamson, which, by the way, wasn't his real name. Again, why did they take this name George? George Hunt Williamson, whose real name was Michel Dobrinovich, was a military intelligence officer 
who used to work for William Dudley Pelly. William Dudley Pelly in the 1930s was an American Nazi party leader, a leader of an organization called the Silver Shirts, who were pro-Hitler and who wanted to establish essentially a Nazi government in America. And uh, the guy who later rebranded himself, George Hunt Williamson, uh, and was a close associate of George Adamski, he basically edited the, the magazine for the William Dudley Pelly organization, the Silver Shirts organization. And their ideology was that essentially the, this white race came from space and it found a, a group of prim, primitive hominids on the planet uh, and some group of these, uh, these ancient astronauts uh, got stranded here and had sex with the natives uh, and all the non-white races basically were spawned by this illicit, um, you know, fornication of the, the space brothers with the native hominin population of the planet. And that the way to bring peace and harmony back to Earth was to purify the human population again. Uh, and then you go to George Van Tassel. And George Van Tassel has got an airstrip out in Big Rock in, in, in California where um, none other than Howard Hughes is coming, landing his private plane on this airstrip on the weekends to come eat Van Tassel's wife's pie. Wow. And <laughs> this is literally, this is what's going on. And J Howard Hughes, right? And Howard Hughes is coming to visit this guy. He's that well-connected. And Van Tassel is advocating exactly the same ideology, that basically this white race came from space and it mixed with hominins here and various inferior races were created. And so a caste system had to be constructed and so on and so forth. And by the way, the house that Van Tassel, uh, you know, lived in, in Big Rock, used to be the layer of a Nazi agent operating in California during World War II. And the feds closed in on this guy at one point. And this Nazi operative had all these explosives stored up in this underground, you know, basically rock carved uh, layer. And the feds accidentally triggered this ex these explosives and they splattered this guy all over the walls of his home. And then uh, the guy who later becomes famous as the contactee author, uh, George Van, Van Tassel, he buys this place. He knew this guy personally. He buys this place and he lives in this house with his family with the, the you know, blood smeared walls of this dead Nazi, uh, you know, as the, the ambiance in which he raises his children and uh, the, the, the walls of the dining room where he has Howard Hughes come over to eat his wife's pie on the weekends, landing at his private airstrip, right? Wow. Now, so, I'm thinking about... Stuff, man. Weird stuff, and it's deeply connected to some kind of crypto-fascist movement that survived the end of the Second World War. Does this tie into the Vril Society? Absolutely. Um, the Vril Society was a late 19-teens occult organization that began uh, actually in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and spread into Prussia. Um, which claimed to be in contact with Nordic uh, celestials. I don't know, they were using the terminology of aliens back in those days, but, you know, Nordic celestial ancestors who were basically giving them all kinds of information. Um, and this real society 
uh, was closely connected to the Thule Society. Some people have even speculated there were two names for the same organization. And the Thule Society, what we know, was founded by a guy called Baron von Sabatendorf, who was an aristocrat interested in uh, preventing the spread of communism in Germany in the 1920s. And so basically this Thule Society that, you know, uh, was, uh, was constituted of aristocrats, of very elite people in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and, and parts of Germany, it is what ultimately fielded the National Socialist German Workers' Party as its pack. The Nazi party was basically a political action committee created by the Thule Gesellschaft and or the Vril Society. But as far as those Vril people go, they got their inspiration from somewhere else as well. So how far can we uh, trace this particular lineage then? Yeah, again, I think it's the Ouroboros. I think that what's happening here is that, and this is a, you know, I mean, it's appalling. Like, look, you have to read it for yourself. I re I am fully aware that it sounds like the ravings of a madman, okay? But the devil's in the details. There's a massive empirical evidence that I brought together from various types of sources in this book, much of which people don't want to look at because it flies in the face of the entire political discourse of the day, okay? Nobody wants to believe that we're in a world dominated by time-traveling Nazis. And, the, uh, and the scariest part of that, I think, is what you describe as far as the quote-unquote afterlife stages that people get into, which I want to touch on next. But before that, everybody, we're going to be doing super chats at the end, so sneed those super chats. And what I wanted to get into before that which I want to make sure I don't forget, is I know that the question about fashion you found to be kind of like a sidebar, not as interesting as what you were talking about before, but there is a very particular reason why I highlighted the fashion. If we're looking at the outfits that the Enki, Enlil, all these entities were drawn to have worn, as well as, let's say, the Egyptian crowns with the uh, cobra on top, as somebody who uh, practices meditation and has the uh, kundalini in his back, when I look at these various, uh, I don't know if you would call them disguises or just fashion trends of the day, they seem to be talking about the human being as being more than just this uh, animal uh, self, the human being being a model of creation where energy can go from just the basic you know sexual reproduction uh, stages into being able to generate what people would refer to as viril uh, chi ki all these various things that people have uh, attributed to experiencing various spiritual uh, states and various insights that otherwise would not be uh, possible. So I was curious whether you see the kind of fashion choices that these entities made in the past relating to this. And also, would you say that uh, with their uh, blue jumpsuits, they decide just, oh, we're just going to dress in something very simple and forget all these fancy crowns and all this stuff. It's too heavy to wear anyway. Like, I don't know if that's if, if that's what you're leaning towards uh, being the reason why they wear these uh, wacky blue outfits. But uh, anyway, I know it's kind of a mouthful, but uh, yeah, let me know about the Kundalini stuff. Well, maybe the blue outfits are their modern fashion statement. Right now they're dealing with us in the modern age. Uh, but no, but in all seriousness, I totally agree with you. Um, and I think that, well, okay, look, 
first of all, it's not intrinsically the case. It doesn't necessarily follow that because they incorporated shamanic symbolism into their attire, they're necessarily beneficent, right? I mean, there, there are all kinds of extremely controlling, hierarchical, manipulative cults that employ all kinds of esoteric symbolism in terms of their attire, iconography, uh, you know, shamanic paraphernalia uh, to use their hocus pocus to manipulate and spiritually oppress people, right? Um, so it doesn't necessarily follow that because they did that, they were beneficent. That having been said, uh, especially after my rather, you know, crass remark about time traveling Nazis, um, I think it, it's important to underline the fact that, as I suggested earlier, in Closer Encounters, I argue that there are two factions here. Quetzalcoatl was a promulgator of enlightenment and a uh, fighter for human liberation. It's very clear from what the Mayans say about him that, you know, he was a Promethean figure fighting for human empowerment and consciousness raising. Uh, but what they also tell us is that he was driven from out of Mesoamerica by a figure called uh, Tezcatlipoca, the Lord of the Smoking Mirror, who fits very much the description of a Zeus or an Indra type character uh, or a Yahweh type Yahweh. character. Um, and so Jove. You know, yeah, Jehovah. Yeah. So we have these two types, uh, these two factions. And I think they I think that the faction that is dedicated to human empowerment, liberation and enlightenment, the Prometheans, as I would call them, are the ones who employed more shamanic imagery and in a sense went more native that after the destruction of Atlantis, there was a, the elites, the, the Olympians, as I call them, retreated to bastions of security and operated from out of a fortified position, whereas the Prometheans took more of a, a path of embedding themselves with various native populations, going native, as it were, and employing more shamanic methods of raising the consciousness of various societies. And this also brings us to the uh, trickster entity that you write about in your book. And one fascinating thing for me to always think about is when we have this idea of the gods with a uh, lowercase g, do they just represent certain cycles, whether it be the changing of the seasons, various uh, abstract concepts like creation, destruction, and maintenance like you would see in the uh, Hindu pantheon, or are they based on real people? And which are the ones that are a bit of both? So when it comes to your idea of the trickster entity, that I see as being just like a purely like astral force like a thought form that's able to show itself in this world as well. And I'm very fascinated by that subject. And that I see as being more of this more abstract thought form type gods as opposed to the historical gods. Where do you see the two possibly overlapping if they do? It's more than just two. So, um, you know, it's not until around the period of Cicero where Cicero writes this book called The Nature of the Gods, mm. where you start to have an abstract theology, even in a pagan context, pre-Christian abstract theology, where the gods are understood as sort of forces of nature uh, or as uh, symbolic, basically in, in platonic terms, 
as kind of eidos structures, as platonic ideas that represent certain forces of nature or certain celestial influences. That's not until Cicero that you see that. If you go back into Homer and Hesiod, certainly in the Iliad and the in the Iliad, for sure, the Odyssey might. There you go. Of course, he has it. You know, this guy. Yeah, Neil, Neil recommended it to me. Neil has the Library of Alexandria behind him. <laughs> so, you know, um, if you go back into the Iliad, you'll see that the gods were humanoid beings that would appear. I mean, and, you know, walk around and have conversations with uh, heroes just the way that any other person would. I mean, that's phenomenologically what's going on in a text as archaic as the Iliad. And that's consistent with what you see in Sumerian literature, ancient Egyptian literature, and so on and so forth. People were experiencing gods, phenomenologically. These were not abstract symbols to them, okay? That only happened much later as you had philosophy, you know, uh, basically uh, refine human cognition and people started to think in terms of abstract principles and so on and so forth. Uh, and get embarrassed by the mess of pagan theology and try to rationalize it somehow, when yeah. faced also with a threat like Christianity. Right. But when you're looking at the Iliad, right there, there's still at least two different things that could be going on. One is you could be dealing with psychic projections. You know, the, the Tibetan mystics write about, I mean, the Vajrayana Buddhists who practice uh, what Westerners would call black magic, write about focused intention, being able to psychokinetically project thought forms that can develop a relative autonomy and walk about the world and interact with people and even get out from under people's control and uh, wind up causing a bunch of mischief. They call them tolpas. tolpas. Yeah, tolpas. And anyone who, who knows traditional Tibetan culture knows that tolpas are very real. And the, the ancient Greco-Romans had a similar thing called egregores. Egregores are these psychokinetically projected thought forms that can either be projected by a person or by a group's belief in the existence of a certain, enter, of a certain entity. And their extremely intense psychic focus on that entity such that that entity kind of ectoplasmically materializes and has a certain relative autonomy in the world. So that's one thing we could be dealing with in accounts uh, like, you know, the appearance of Athena to Achilles in the Iliad or something. Can the we, other thing oh, that we could be the other, sorry, the other thing we could be dealing with, which is what I lay out in Closer Encounters, and these none of these are mutually exclusive. Uh, the other thing we could be dealing with is these, you know, UFO pilots who are coming down and, you know, uh, basically continuing to manipulate ancient societies albeit in a period where they have lost the total control over the planet that they did have prior to the revolt that took place in Atlantis. Could there also be a third option here where I'm thinking about people like Rudolf Steiner, for instance, as well as various uh, theosophists who talk about the creation of existence being one that starts off from ideas that end up uh, turning more solidified over time. And you also find this within Hinduism with the concept of the universe being created from Brahma's breath, solidifying into existence and then going back in. Would there be something to that idea, the idea that even us as we exist today, that we are the creation of ideas 
that are made solid. Yes, but there's a lot of danger in uh, there's a lot of danger in um, embracing that view unreflectively and without proper care and consideration, you know, uh, for the details. Because see, it's very easy for that kind of a view to turn into perennialism, uh, to turn into the idea that the entire finite world that we experience, right, all the phenomenology of our consciousness is actually just the unfolding uh, expression of a singular deity, that there is a kind of eternal and timeless one, which has somehow become psychologically dissociated from itself, and that we are all th ultimately, we're thought forms, and here's where it gets nonsensical, because as soon as you want to say we're thought forms projecting other thought forms, like we're projecting tulpas, that doesn't really make sense if you take the perennialist view, because on the perennialist view, it's all Brahman, or it's all what Parmenides called the one, in which case none of us have any free will at all. It would all just be the will of God, and in fact, nothing would ever be happening. There's Not only one eternal instant. Right. Time is an illusion. That is uh, what people say. I mean, that is a very big question that I personally don't really have an answer to. It's hard for me to imagine just as a thought experiment for there to be anything more than one thing, if that makes sense. Because if I imagine two things, if two things exist, then they are part of some whole. No. Okay. <laughs> now, the, this is the conversation, however brief, mm -hmm. uh, that I really want to have with you. All right. Um, because look, I mean, yeah, okay, Closer Encounters, I mean, look, it, it's a UFO book, right? Actually, frankly, to tell you the truth, and, and, you know, I've read all the single volume treatments of the UFO phenomenon. Frankly, I'm hard pressed to think of a better one, one that's more comprehensive and more sophisticated. You know, I mean, Passport to Magonia was damn good in its time. Um, Jim Mars does a pretty good idea and a pretty good job in uh, uh, Alien Identities. William Bramley's God, Gods of Eden is definitely uh, worth a read. But yeah, it's a hell of a comprehensive UFO book. But Closer Encounters, ultimately, it's a philosophical text. And one argument that's at the core of this text, when viewed as a work of philosophy, and that runs through my whole corpus, is this ontological, epistemological argument about monism versus the finite and the structure of the nature of reality, being versus becoming, and so forth. And so to, 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 you know, take my point of departure as what you just said, your impulse, as soon as you think of two or three independently existing entities, is to try to unify them in terms of some one that's a background or context for them. No, why? Why? That's your uh, human psychological desire for wholeness and harmony kicking in. It's your resistance to di uh, dissonance that motivates you to want to see things in those terms. And an argument that I've advanced through my entire corpus, including in Closer Encounters, is that the view you associated with Steiner toward the beginning here, where there is a kind of idealism, the world is a creation of ideas, and you know there, there is no matter the way that materialists conceive of it. All phenomena are ideational in nature, and there is no physical reality that can in any way be disentangled from consciousness. 
I accept all of that as true. And I, I make arguments for it as ontologically, uh, as an ontologically adequate and compelling description of quote reality, unquote, which, which is an ironic way to put it because actually what it's saying is that there is no objective reality quote reality, unquote, is in an endless interplay with consciousness, but with what consciousness? not the consciousness of some postulated singular, eternal, and ever-perfect deity, the various finite consciousnesses that arise and that pass out of existence over time, right? I mean, this is a view that Gautama Buddha took in his critique of uh, Vedic monism, Mm. the view that, yes, beings are fundamentally mutually interdependent in their origination. No being has any inherent essence where it stands alone apart from everything else in the cosmos. We all are fundamentally interpenetrating on some level and our consciousness uh, co-constitutes physical phenomena, what we frame as physical phenomena. But it does so in an intersubjective manner so that every entity in the cosmos is a stakeholder in the constitution of reality. And by every entity, I don't just mean humans, I mean beings at all different rungs of consciousness, which is another thing that I think Gautama Buddha got right, Uh, namely that consciousness is an emergent phenomenon measured by degrees. It's not like all of a sudden, the way some Gnostics think, you know, humans have consciousness and animals don't. No, animals have certain degrees of consciousness, Parapsychological studies done by people like Cleve Baxter on plants show that plants have consciousness. Right. Plants can respond to people in ways that demonstrate a certain kind of intentionality. Yep. And so, and it, by the way, he found this in bacterium inside yogurt samples as well. Okay. Mycelium. Uh, Mycelium read, can carve out like paths and stuff, and they're super brilliant species. Mm-hmm. Read uh, Prometheus and Atlas uh, for a discussion of this. It's it's. You can see consciousness emergent even in bacterium. In any case, what I suggest on the ontological level of my philosophical project is that we're dealing uh, with a world that is co-constituted by a plurality of relatively independent forces, entities of all kinds from bacterium to, to animals, to humans, to superhuman beings of various types who are in a struggle to basically collapse wave functions into what we take to be the material world around us, that there is a co-constitution of physical reality by a plurality of independent forces, what you might call, what William James called, a pan-psychic pluralism rather than uh, monism. And the, the reason, above all, that I'm motivated to elaborate that kind of an ontology is that it's the only ontology that gives us any free will. You cannot really coherently and consistently defend the notion of human personal responsibility and uh, uh, free will if you have monism, ontological monism. Well, there is an interesting thing that I could also add to this conversation regarding uh, Steiner. When he was describing the consciousness of certain animals, he alluded to him being similar to a hand with fingers, where if you look at schools of fish, where you look at zebras running around the savanna, 
maybe there is something, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, there may be something to the idea that there are degrees of consciousness where entities have more freedom or less freedom depending on how they're developed, but there could be other, let's say, super entities that may be, I guess you could say, in charge of a flock of seagulls or a bunch of bees or things of that nature, and people who have had DMT-related experiences report meeting certain entities that designate themselves as being in charge of the wasps or in charge of, like, whatever insects or... I don't know. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's a nested hierarchy. And there's definitely... degree. Okay, degrees of consciousness correlate to degrees of freedom. Yes. So I totally agree with what you just... Well, I mean, okay. I don't know about, you know, the god of the wasps or whatever. <laughs> to somebody in a dmt trip i don't i don't know uh let me let me throw something in there for a second because mm, there's the yeah. idea that there's some sort of bacteria species that can travel on meteors and asteroids and land on planets like earth for example and there's also these i forgot what the species is called but it's a weird species it looks like a snail if you cut it in half it will grow a brain on the other side that didn't have a brain so there, there's the idea of this sort of species is like the closest thing you could have to a species that would be like come from a different planet or something like that. So what do you, is, is, can these two things happen? Can, can these two things be reality at the same time where you can have literally aliens who are intelligent, uh, humanoids like us and bacteria that comes in sparks an evolution and we get Darwin's theory. We can, can both happen at the same time is what I'm asking. Obviously. I mean, look, uh, even if we're the creation of Nordic time travelers, what created them? I mean, right. ultimately, humanoids are the product of evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I consider these people who argue against evolutionary theory to be retarded, whether they're, you know, Christian evangelicals or whether they're the more sophisticated brand of the uh, Hare Krishna uh, people who have the Bhakti Vedanta Institute, the Hare Krishnas have their whole science, scientific quote unquote institute where they've got people like Michael Cremo and Richard Thompson out there, you know, advocating alternatives to Darwinian evolution with theories of devolution where, I don't know, apes devolved from certain types of men and, you know, humans were, were just around. We were always, we were around at the time of the dinosaurs. I go into evidence that people used to argue humans were around at the time of dinosaurs in closer encounters. And I show that actually, no, what this is evidence for is that there are time travelers at all different epochs mm. in the geological past, including at the time of the dinosaurs. And there are various objects that clearly have been left in geological stratum that are hundreds of millions of years old. But to go back to uh, what you were saying, Lev, about freedom and consciousness, and this is actually connected in, in a way. Um, the, the evidence for time travelers and objects in these deep geological strata and this idea of freedom and consciousness. At the core of my book, Closer Encounters, is this question or problem of freedom and degrees of consciousness. Because basically what I'm arguing is that we are inside of a control system that's been set up by humans. I mean, you can call them superhumans if you want, but you know, essentially humans who are refusing any further evolution of consciousness. And by that same token, they are at war with freedom 
Because what freedom means is open-ended evolution of consciousness. And so by choking off the further evolution of consciousness with their delusion that they've achieved perfection, which just expresses their own subconscious desire to maintain control over the human population, they are also the greatest threat to freedom. Okay, uh, so that's really what the rest of the book revolves around. And I want to get back to that in a short while, but I would be amiss if I didn't go back to what we talked about earlier regarding the uh, schools of fish and the zebras being the fingers on the hand and trying to see if that can be applied towards human beings as well. Where I recall uh, Julian Jaynes talking about the uh, mind that was split in half in his uh, book about the Bronze Age, his idea is that the archaic Greeks saw their existence as being puppets of the gods and whatever messages they got in their head that was the gods talking to them to me that does not seem like the zeus slash yahweh uh slash en uh, enlil type uh, jealous entity that's just like an advanced humanoid to me that seems to be more of these abstract principles that play out emanations if you will playing themselves out through the human drama so i'm curious what you think about uh, that aspect of it I find that book to be fascinating, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Yes. I, but I think that, as is often the case with people who come up with brilliant theories, my own being no exception, uh, they overstate the case sometimes. You know, we do, we do this because it serves to make points more dramatically, right? Uh, so cases can be overstated. And I think that Julian Jaynes... He's, he's interpreting too many different types of evidence through a single, uh, you know, through a single theoretical matrix in order to substantiate this theory that he has. Hmm. Uh, so I think that there are places in that book where he's probably taking what's actually evidence for these um, Nordic overlords interacting with archaic Greeks and construing it as evidence for a different type of uh, pre-rational human cognition. And there are other places where it's probably evidence for exactly that. And then there is a third position, which I think is quite legitimate, uh, and which Steiner also um, writes about, where it appears as if in archaic societies, and therefore certainly in Atlantis, which would have been a, a society of deep prehistory, right? Human minds unmasked did not work the way that they do today. There was not the degree of rational reflection and individuation that we started to see in human societies from, let's say, classical Greece onwards. And so Steiner writes uh, in his, in his um, reflections on Atlantis and the demise of Atlantean society that the Atlanteans had a kind of mass consciousness where people made decision based on memory rather than on rational analysis. And they had more of a group mind than a capacity for individual reflection. And that's very much in line with what Julian Jaynes is saying in the, his book on the breakdown of consciousness. And you can, and Steiner also uh, uh, adds to that, that this mass at a certain point, there were, there were individuals at a certain point, there were individuals. In other words, at a certain point, 
some Atlanteans individuated themselves to where they were in a position to manipulate those who hadn't. And this first group of individuals, I mean, some of them tried to enlighten and benefit society, but others of them used their individuation and their new powers for rational analysis in order to manipulate the mass consciousness of the majority of the Atlantean population. So you can see a scenario where something like what James is talking about, right? This kind of weird, pre-rational, bicameral mind kind of thing is the cognitive state of the majority of the population. And then it's being manipulated by an elite of people who have already individuated themselves and are capable of rational reflection. Now, if you want to set it in the context of closer encounters, that elite would be the time travelers. The time travelers who are already individuated people who are in a sense coming from the human future into a primitive society that is a uh, basically hive mind of a sort and using that mass consciousness in order to uh, effectively control the population. Well, this... Uh, oh. I was just going to ask, do you think mm -hmm. it's possible that someone, someone who attains this technology of time travel do they become basically like a god in the sense they can keep traveling in time and changing things and keep themselves alive forever as long as they don't screw up and follow the you know the the path in front of them in theory yes but the problem with your formulation is that you're thinking about it too individualistically this is a whole society of people and remember what we were saying earlier in terms of the analysis of art and architecture uh, what kind of a social structure you would need to endure as a time-traveling civilization. It would have to be an extremely stable society, which means an extremely rigid society, which means extrapolating further that you're not going to have, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry just dicking around with the timeline on their own because Tom wants to be, a, you know, his own personal god. It doesn't right. work that way. You're gonna, it's going to be a lot more like, frankly, North Korea. You know, you're going to have an extremely cohesive, totalitarian ruling group that wow. are as mm. much the prisoners of themselves. But as with it, anybody else. That's but within point. North Korea, from what I heard, there's also massive orgies and various things that the elites can get away with that the uh, common people cannot. That's been the history with uh, Russia as well and various other places. But uh, what I want to get to. Speaking of this, by the way, by yes. the way what, I just, what I just said is not mutually exclusive to that. Look at Zeus and how he behaves. Oh, definitely. And yeah. then, right. And the then, first, uh, the oh, first, he's got, furry. Made. he's got his Ganymede uh, cupbearer. Yeah. Yeah. And both Steiner and uh, I believe Edgar Casey talk about all kinds of debauchery that was taking place in, in the ruling elite in Atlantis. So, debauchery and right. sadism of mm. the kind that we, you know, Zeus really exemplified. So that kind of totalitarian, cohesive mindset on the one hand, and then sadism on the other hand, are not at all mutually exclusive. I mean, a great example of this is that horrible film Salo by uh, Pierpaolo Pasolini, Pasolini's film about uh, the late days of Italian fascism, where he shows you know, these, how these Italian fascists in the Salo Republic conduct themselves mm. privately. In any case. Well, when it comes to... Yeah. When it comes to uh, Jack Parsons' uh, book and quote about freedom being a double-edged sword, I can't think of anything more appropriate to apply to this conversation than that uh, particular quote. 
because I am not excusing at all the things that these entities uh, would have been uh, doing with us, like you were mentioning. But I wonder if this is an inevitability of having freedom in the first place, where let's say if we were to break out, would some of us not utilize this opportunity to now be gifted with the ability to transcend this particular prison to start creating our own little prison, to start creating our own little empire where we get to do whatever we want because we have the power to do that. So my question is, what exactly does it take to get people out of that particular mindset so they don't keep repeating that same pattern? There's absolutely no doubt about it. And one of the most uh, disturbing arguments that I make in Closer Encounters is that, frankly, if you think in majoritarian terms, if you're someone who is of a democratic mindset and you like to think in terms of what's good for the majority of people, what benefits most of society, one or another society or the whole planetary society, well, then the UFO cover-up is entirely justified. It is entirely justified because the vast majority of people on this planet, regardless of what society they come from and what their ethnic and religious background is, are absolutely unprepared to deal with the realities of this phenomenon, to come face-to-face -face empirically with the structure of the control system that we find ourselves in to wield practically the types of technologies that the overlords governing this system have, if you were to release those technologies publicly, like let's just take zero point energy, right? Hal Putoff, who uh, is a, is a uh, physicist who worked at the Stanford uh, Research Institute, uh, on contract with the CIA to develop the remote viewing program, but who primarily is a physicist and who's worked in the, the classified engineering world for many decades, he has been uh, for some time pursuing zero-point energy um, research at his Institute of Advanced Study. And he makes this point about how the same ZPE propulsion drive that will give you anti-gravity uh, craft that can at least appear to travel faster than the speed of light. And the same ZPE uh, generator or, or power plant that will effectively give you free energy. In other words, there's more power coming out of that system than is being put into it to run it. That same basic technology can be turned into a bomb just vastly more destructive than the most high-yield thermonuclear weapon, right? I mean, and this is true in terms of every energy source, every power source that we've known throughout the course of history, from gunpowder, uh, which can be used to propel something in a positive sense, to, uh, you know, its application in, you know, uh, ballistics, all the way to rocket fuel, uh, you know, to gas, which can be used both to generate power or to, uh, you know, pro propel missiles into civilian populations, all the way to uh, nuclear fission and fusion with their dual use as a source of electrical 
uh, energy and a source of mass destruction. This has been true of the whole history of energy. Why would we think it would be any different with zero-point energy? No, zero-point energy, by the same token that it provides you with an extraordinary electrogravitic propulsion system and with, quote, free energy, unquote, is also going to give you a bomb which, as, as Hal Putoff puts it, can take a coffee cup's worth of mercury thorium, let's say, and vaporize the oceans of Earth with it. A coffee, this is, these are, I'm quoting the words of Hal Putoff, a coffee cup's worth of whatever the power source of a ZPE device is, when detonated, could vaporize the oceans of Earth. One bomb. So you're going to take this thing and put it in a guy's backyard like it's a propane <laughs> tank, and he can use that as his free energy device? Really? You have that much trust in your neighbor? Yeah, mm -hmm. Hank Hill being able to annihilate the entire world. Yeah, and, you know, okay, maybe we can trust Lev, you know, but can we trust this or that <laughs> uh, political group that has grievances, you know, this or that so-called group of terrorists, right? Um, look, and so here, here we come to the heart of the problem, and I just took zero-point energy. There's all kinds of other things, all kinds of other technologies and techniques that they have including psychic techniques, including, including psychotronic technologies, uh, which pose a profound problem of personal responsibility. The kind of society that you would need. Okay, let me, let me put it to you this way. Going back to Jack Parsons and the double-edged sword of, of freedom, right? The, you, you need one of two types of societies. One of either two types of societies in order to be able to effectively wield these technologies and techniques. Either it has to be an absolutely totalitarian society where there's total collectivism, absolute cohesion, no personal freedom, where everyone is on an organic level always already in line with the plan and with the program. And that doesn't mean everyone's enlightened. Much more likely, it means it's a pyramidal society where the technologies and techniques are kept out of the hands of the majority of the population. The majority are a herd who are used like slaves of various types, as in the Hindu caste system. I mean, in the Hindu caste system, you got slaves and you got slaves. Same in ancient Egypt, right? You have, you know, the Bazaris, the, the worker class, they're a kind of slaves. I mean, they're, they're wage slaves and uh, the way in which their existence is entirely materialistic is a form of spiritual slavery. But then you have manual laborers and so forth who are slaves in a much more evident sense. In any case, you got this mass of slaves building upwards pyramidally toward a capstone of completely unthinking soldiers or guardians or warriors, unthinking, collectivistic, who are without any doubt, without any question, executing the orders of the people who are at the capstone, right. who themselves are totalitarians worse than the North Korean leadership, who don't even, they don't doubt themselves. Maybe they go on sadistic binges, but they don't doubt themselves ever, and they don't doubt the plan. Now, that's either that's one form of society where you can have zero-point energy. Because you don't need trust. There's no individuality. You don't need trust. That's it's true. entirely unified. The other kind of society is one where you have such a degree of individuation and the development of human personality that 
each individual is so free-spirited and so positively devoted to their personal development and to their and to maximizing their creativity that they would never even think to harm their fellow in that community hmm. a maximal trust society of maximally individuated and self-individuating people but is that realistic well i want to throw in something absolutely not absolutely yeah. not in terms of the world we have today mm. or in terms of the world we'll be able to achieve before we have to come face to face with these Nordics. And let me, let, let me, sure. This. Of course, a very important one. In fact, it's the most important one. We are fast approaching what, uh, you know, people in the tech community call the technological singularity. In other words, there's a convergent advancement of various technologies from genetic engineering to artificial intelligence, to robotics, to nanotechnology. VR which within the next 30 years is going to, it's going to make it impossible to hide something like zero point energy from the public, right? I mean, it's like, okay, Martin Aircraft or Lear Aircraft or whatever, who may have hit upon this technology in the 1950s, they've been able to bury it in black projects, you know, for a certain period of time. But once we have artificial intelligence systems designing aircraft another 10 to 15 years from now, once we have, you know, aeronautical engineers, I don't know, maybe in Singapore or whatever, who have their IQs enhanced to 200 because they were genetically engineered embryos, at some point it's going to be impossible not to hit upon the type of basic technologies that the UFO pilots have today. And if they're running a control system that we're ensconced in, do you really think that they're going to let us get to that point? where we can achieve not only technological parity with them, where we could resist them, get out from under their control, right? Uh, do, do you think they're going to let us get to that point? No, obviously not. So, so what's going to happen within the next 30 years? We're going to have disclosure, quote, disclosure, unquote, forced upon us by the Nordics and in a situation that's manufactured so that we are in an extremely weakened and demoralized position when mm. we face them. That's being created now. I mean, COVID from 2020 onward is the beginning of a process of the controlled demolition of our advanced industrial society so that we're literally on our knees when these bastards step out of their flying saucers or their black limousines, these seven foot tall Nordic people. And they basically say they're here to cure disease and poverty and to basically have a you know, a system of global harmony and resource conservation, so on and so forth, who knows, under the flag of the United Nations. So, so, but here's the problem. That point in time is 20 to 30 years from now. If you want an alternative to that, meaning that we take these technologies and techniques into our own control, and we refuse to be subservient to these overlords, we refuse to have them define our destiny, well, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to sacrifice the majority of the population of the planet because the majority of the population of the planet are not even close to being able to make that transition in consciousness within the next 20 to 30 years. They're not close to making it within the next two to 300 years. And so we're faced with a choice. Either we can be majoritarians, we can be Democrats, and we can say, well, for the sake of the majority, we will go back under these overlords. We will surrender and maybe someday on the distant horizon, we'll have an opportunity to rebel again. Maybe right. somehow 
You know, like after the destruction of Atlantis, slowly over thousands of years, we might build the Library of Alexandria again, only to have it burned by something else like Christianity. Right. <laughs> right. Or uh, we can say, which is my position, fuck that. I'm not going backwards. Never again. There are a group of people on this planet who are ready to make that evolutionary leap. And I speak for that group of people. And I don't care whether 90% or 99% of the planet is ready to make that evolutionary leap. There are humans who are ready to make it. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no price too high to pay to make sure that that group of people, however small, does not wind up enslaved and oppressed under these overlords again. Even if they would be able to, speaking of that group of people, utilize this technology in irresponsible ways that are liable to destroy the entire planet. Which group of people are we talking about? The group of people that is not prepared to wisely administer these various technologies. Yeah, well, that's the majority of the planet, right? Exactly. So, so what I'm saying is, if the majority of the planet would basically unleash utter mayhem and vicious, violent chaos over the world, if they were to come into possession of whether it's zero point energy or whether it's various psychotronic technologies or psychic techniques, like trainable psychokinesis at a high level, right? Uh, if they're not ready to handle those technologies and techniques, that doesn't justify the rest of us who are being subjected to another totalitarian hierarchical control system, it doesn't justify our being set back again by thousands mm. of years and being deprived of this knowledge, uh, you know, of this science and mm. technology. No, we're going to move forward. If we have to move forward without 99% of the population, we'll move forward without 99% of the population. That's evolution. Evolution is the selection of an adaptive minority and the extinction of of a non-adaptive majority. That's how evolution works in nature, right? There's a mutation. The mutation, by definition, is not a change across an entire species. A mutation is a rare aberration. And the mutation is selected for by the, the environmental stresses. In this case, talking in social evolutionary terms, although there's an ecological dimension to this too, but talking in social evolutionary terms, the environmental stress is the situation we find ourselves in with the imminence of the technological singularity, the need for UFO disclosure, the need to come into some kind of open public relation to these goddamn Nordics. And that's the selection pressure. And so if only a small adaptive minority has mutated to where it can become the kernel of a new species moving forward from there, well, I'm for the evolution of the new species. I'm not for mass retardation. <laughs> right. How uh, do you see this uh, playing out in the future as far as, you know, that Chinese quote, may you live in interesting times or may you be doomed to live in interesting times? I'm just imagining some various spiritual wars going on where there was a scenario you painted in your uh, book, Closer Encounters, where a gentleman was in a coma, I believe, and he was in this strange uh, landscape with, uh, I believe it was blue sand and the purple sky. There were people that were lying down naked. These UFOs came and these beams took away the souls of these people. Then they went as zombies into this hole and it was just this traumatic experience the guy, uh, the guy experienced. 
while I've never experienced anything like that in my dreams, although I do write my dreams down pretty much every single day and compile like 200 pages of them so far, it seems to me that there are very, uh, very hard to process and scary worlds that people find themselves in. You could say like a repetition of seeing people's faces just jump out at you and various things of that nature. And what I'm curious about is what is the navigation of those particular realms going to be like if we're talking about not the physical struggle of whatever's going to come next, but the uh, psychic spiritual struggle Right. Well, let me get a bit into the detail of what you, the case you were referring to, because, you know, on the face of it, it, it sounds insane. Um, <laughs> it was uh, this guy, Paul Garrett. He was a, a house painter uh, in San Francisco who had a near-death experience uh, in 1969, uh, which is to say he died. Okay. He, his heart right. stopped. He died. They took him to the hospital and he was flatlined for quite a while. And during the time that he was flatlined, before obviously they eventually resuscitated him so he, he could tell this tale. And by the way, this Paul Garrett, this house painter, had had no previous paranormal experiences, including UFO experiences. He'd experienced none of that before this incident, and he started experiencing a lot of it after you know he came back, after he was resuscitated successfully. And what happened to him in that period where he was flatlined is he said basically he found himself on a beach with a bunch of other naked bodies uh, and the beach had blue sand and um, it was under this very like ethereal sky, I don't know, like with purplish tones in it. And there were flying saucers in the sky, UFOs in the sky that were like living organic beings. And these uh, UFOs were sucking the life energy out of the corpses strewn across the coast. Wow. Uh, as if they were parasites feeding on human soul energy. That sounds like a bad and DMT using, trip. Yeah. We'll and using it DMT. for propulsion or something. Mm -hmm. And then, even more horrifying, after they were done sucking the souls out of all these people, Garrett said that all of a sudden, all these, these uh, soulless corpses stood up at once and they walked toward a giant black hole on the horizon. Whoa. Wherein they annihilated themselves or were made to annihilate themselves, right? They just walked into this black hole on the horizon. Just to be clear, is the horizon where the water is or where the sand is? Yeah, like where the ocean meets the, the, the end of the beach. You know, like somewhere in the distance, there was this black hole and they all get up. And it's like a, some image from out of the Quran, you know, the, the way the day of judgment. Sounds is like revelation. Some shit. Yeah, exactly. The second death. But they jump into right. the lake of fire. Right. And so this is not at all incidental, okay, that it's something like out of the book of Revelations or out of the Quran, because this was one of the cases studied by what's called the Collins elite. There are a group of people in the United States who are essentially a theocratic power elite made up of generals, admirals, captains, uh, various intelligence officers from various agencies who since 1947 have been studying the UFO phenomenon and who came to the conclusion fairly early on that this phenomenon is inextricable from the religious history of mankind. And that effectively what have been called angels and demons throughout 
at least Western and Muslim religious history, are these same entities that we're face to face with in the UFO phenomenon. And this Collins elite, actually, it was constituted in, initially in, 19, uh, in the mid-1940s to spy on Jack Parsons and what kind of, quote, black magic, unquote, he was doing while he held high-level security clearances. And then when Roswell took place in July of 1947, the, the CIA and the Pentagon retasked this group to study the UFO phenomenon in general. And it's not at this point, the Collins elite is not an official government organization. It's a kind of informal private group. But essentially, they've come up with so many cases, like the case of this Garrett, you know, in San Francisco, this house painter, that are apocalyptically religious in nature and that have to do with uh, the transition between death and, and whatever comes beyond. Right. I was going to say rebirth, but obviously these people are Judeo-Christian, so they don't subscribe to that. But in any case, some do. They, they um, well, at least not these theocrats in America that are, that right. are the right. early ones did. But yeah. 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 And so they, they basically uh, came to the conclusion that, look, we can't tell the public the truth about the UFO phenomenon. And these are well-placed people in the CIA, Defense Department, you know, Defense Intelligence Agency, military intelligence. We can't tell people the truth about the UFO phenomenon because it means exposing the, ma the machinations of angels and demons in this world. And if we expose that, we're exposing Antichrist. But at the same time, we're accelerating the advent of the apocalypse. That in, a, in other words, if we tell people what the devil is up to, we're going to be accelerating the end game and uh, triggering the apocalypse, right? So the, these Collins elite folks are laboring under the delusion that they're, quote, doing God's work, unquote, by holding back the apocalypse through the suppression of information about UFO disclosure. And from, from what I've been given to understand, this Collins elite is in an internal struggle with another element of the U.S. deep state, which right now is trying to forward, quote, disclosure, unquote, but again, for another very, very nefarious agenda, which is to facilitate the uh, open recolonization of this planet by that Nordic elite. So you have these two factions struggling with one another inside the U.S. deep state, both of them operating uh, in various intelligence agencies, especially the CIA and various branches of the military. What would you make of somebody like, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, he's referred to as the Colonel by comedian Tim Dillon, and he wrote the book Mind War. I'm trying to remember his name right now. Uh, Aquino? Uh, say that again? Aquino. Aquino. Michael yes, Aquino? yes, Michael Aquino. Yeah. You know, I want to be careful how I answer that question because, you know, there have been allegations of child abuse against him and, and he was implicated in the, quote, satanic panic, unquote, of the 1980s. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I don't know him personally and I've never investigated the matter. I don't know uh, what he might or might not have done. What I do know is that a lot of those libels as uh, part of the satanic panic in the 1980s were just that. I mean, there were libelous, defamatory false accusations uh, on the part of hysterical evangelical Christians. 
what I find there, interesting about oh sorry go ahead uh, yeah so so I, mm -hmm. I don't know you know in terms of allegations that have been made against him but from what I can tell of the temple of set um, again uh, it appears to me that the guy had more integrity than Anton LaVey Anton LaVey I see as a carny barker the guy was a total charlatan. He had no principles. Uh, he was in it to make a buck. He was basically a, a con artist. And it seems like Aquino saw through that. He was a little bit more sophisticated as a thinker. Well, not a little bit, a lot more sophisticated as a thinker. And he had a background in military intelligence. And so, you know, he took a bunch of people from the, the uh, Church of Satan and uh, split off and created this Temple of Set. It was more esoteric, more, you know, robustly philosophical. Uh, so that's so. What side do I think he's on? He's certainly not part of the Collins elite. That much is for sure. <laughs> uh, is he connected to people who are trying to advance the Nordic agenda? I would say probably not, because those people are setting us up for some kind of collectivistic, hierarchical, totalitarian control system. And whatever else you want to say about uh, uh, Aquino and whatever he may have done in the '80s, uh, he does not seem to me to be someone who is for totalitarianism. He seems to be uh, a libertine, let's just say. Well, I uh, read his book, uh, Mindstar. I know that he also wrote Mind War, but Mindstar was the one that was talking about his views. I found them to be kind of similar to yours in the sense that he is pro-freedom and he looks towards the Egyptian gods. I'm probably not saying this correctly. The Neteru, how do you pronounce uh, that? Yeah, Netero. Netero, yes. So he sees in them these emanations of abstract principles that humans can live by. So that is, again, I think going back to the uh, Rudolf Steiner way of looking at these things, very different from these uh, uh, jealous so-called gods of the Old Testament or the uh, Olympian. Uh, but... Well, very, it's also very different from Steiner in the sense that mm. Steiner set up this big opposition between uh, Lucifer and Ahriman, which, by the way, in my next book, I'm going to go into this in some detail. Uh, my next book will be out before too long. And uh, I'm going to go into a critique of Steiner on specifically this point, where Steiner appropriates elements of Zoroastrian theology in order to draw this thing, distinction between Lucifer on the one hand and Ahriman on the other, and frames Christ as this kind of mediating figure between a principle of titanic individuation that's Lucifer, rationalistic, titanic, transcendental individuation that's Lucifer, and on the other hand, Ahriman, which supposedly is this telluric, purely materialistic, you know... Solidification. Head. Yeah. And uh, I don't see that as constructive. It's certainly not faithful to the Zoroastrian theology that he's appropriating to articulate that. And so in that sense, I'm much more aligned with Aquino. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't shy away from being uh, branded a Satanist. I think that contrary to Aquino's attempt to appropriate the ancient Egyptian gods as a way to frame a Satanism that's pre-Christian, the entity to look to, the God, the, not God, but rather the deity, the Titan to look to is Prometheus, uh, the ancient Greek God. I mean, OK, Set, sure, because Set stands in opposition to the, the pantheon of Osiris, which in a way you could construe as the Olympian pantheon, yeah. right? And so Set is like that figure in opposition to the 
Olympian pantheon or to the devas. Uh, so sure, but I think that uh, in terms of archetypal psychology and the philosophical qualities that are implicit in the archetype of Prometheus, Prometheus is a much more potent and constructive um, proto-Satan to look to. If you want to frame a Satanism that is pre-Christian and that's not dependent upon the discourse of Judeo-Christianity, an aim that Aquino had, which I think is quite admirable and which obviously I've pursued myself. So there is a quote I want to quickly read, and we're going to be going to a Super Chats pretty soon as well. So everybody, need those Super Chats and be sure to subscribe. So here we go. Um, on talking about Set, he was rather a Neter against the Neteru, the entity who symbolized that which is not of nature. This is a very curious role for a Neter in Egypt cosmology to be a presence and a force which alone could not be apprehended by perceptions of the natural senses. Set thus represents the nameless thing whose existence we know of by the shadow. It casts on things apprehended and things perceived by it. The non-natural presence of self, telos, in individual intelligent life. So I'm curious what you think about that. Uh, there's a book by Peter Lavenda called uh, the, the Dark Lord where Lavenda also talks about Set very much in those terms and connects Set to the Aeon of Horus in the thought of Aleister Crowley and also to the Cthulhu mythos of H.P. Lovecraft. And at the very end of, actually, Closer Encounters ends with uh, a contemplation of that material. And so, yes, I would say that in the Egyptian context, Set does represent that Typhonian force of chaos, which is a precondition for infinite creativity. Right? I mean, this goes back to what I was uh, picking on you for earlier when you're talking about how as soon as I think of two, I have to think of some kind of a reconciling unity that's a background or context for those finite entities or, you know, points of view. Um, no. No, the background is chaos. Finitude comes from out of chaos. And for there to be constructive order, for order to be ever more constructive and creative in the sense of the ancient Iranian idea, sepanto menu, that Zarathustra talks about, for the progressively constructive force to operate in the cosmos, there has to be a background of chaos which is interminable and ineradicable. And so to the extent that Set represents that principle of chaos in the ancient Egyptian pantheon, that he is that opposition to the nature gods, to the, to the to natural law, the opposition to natural law, I would very much affirm that figure. And I'd say that, you know, again, you know, Aquino had admirable aspirations. I do what he was trying to do with Set in what I think is a much more philosophically sophisticated way in terms of Prometheus and an understanding of the relationship between chaos and cosmos. But it does still go back to this 
emphasis on responsibility, where when you do have an awareness of self, like we talked about, you can use it for various ends. You can use it to become your own Zeus with a various uh, pantheon of helpers, quote-unquote angels, uh, various orgies you can engage in, various ways that you could be extremely cruel to the people around you that are under your thumb, or you can use it to expand the consciousness of those around you. And when it comes to this, I want to throw something in here that you may disagree with, but uh, it's been on my mind for quite a while. When we're talking about these various entities of Yahweh and these forces that you are looking at as not being those that you have to bow down towards, but as those that you should have a, at the least, a skepticism of at first, and then being able to rebel against them. What if we can look at that as being also an aspect of the trickster, as being the challenger for growth? And without that challenge, without knowing what evil is, there wouldn't be any growth in the first place. So Closer Encounters is not my latest book. My latest book is this book, Uberman. Uh, and it's actually it's a sequel to uh, the novel I wrote, um, Faustian Futurist, which has a lot about the close encounter phenomenon in it, including things that can't be substantiated by empirical research, but that are, let's say, more intuitive, uh, and so which I've expressed in the form of, quote, fiction, unquote. And its sequel was Uberman, which is the, the book that I wrote after Closer Encounters. And what you just said is exactly at the heart of this book. So in this book, there's a chapter called Phenomenal Authorization, where I kind of show my hand and I reveal some of the more esoteric dimension of my thought uh, in terms of which some of the things I say in Closer Encounters are exoteric. On a more esoteric level, which I've started to be more forthright about, I think that what you're saying is exactly the case. But God is not the one in control. The devil is. I'm not a Gnostic dualist. I'm not a dualist. I don't believe in good and evil. My, my whole work from the concept of the spectral revolution onwards is a deconstruction of binary thinking. And so I, I totally reject uh, the objective reality of the good versus evil distinction. And I mean, you know, the book Uberman that I just held up, it, you know, it, the ideology of the Ubermensch is inextricable from Nietzsche's deconstruction of the dichotomy of good versus evil. So at the heart of Uberman, what I argue is that, yeah, uh, there is a trickster. And, you know, I already start to make this point at the end of Closer Encounters. There is a trickster who is baiting these Nordics and playing with these totalitarian overlords in a way that's meant to deconstruct their totalitarian cast of mind and to free up our evolutionary potential to get out, get us out from under them, to deconstruct their system sufficiently so that we can get out from under them and to then uh, catalyze further growth on our part. And what I admit at the core of Uberman is that the Abrahamic religions are not an entirely negative phenomenon. The Abrahamic religions are the outcome of an incredibly complex dialectical struggle, uh, a kind of hyperdimensional game that's being played by a cosmic intelligence 
which has as its basic motivation to catalyze maximal creativity and individuation. But that cosmic intelligence is most adequately describable in terms of the qualities commonly attributed to the devil. The word diabolos uh, comes from diabolain in ancient Greek, which means to set in a dynamic tension, to put two forces at odds with one another, to create a uh, dissonance. And that dissonance, that thesis antithesis, then promotes dialectical syntheses that are a motor for indefinitely further development. Right? So, yeah, um, God is an invention of the devil. That's one of my fundamental theses. Well, uh, what you just said right now, it does remind me, and we're going to Super Chats real soon, but what you said does remind me of something that I'm even, even able to see in the mind's eye, where when I meditate, putting on the mindfold, that thing invented by Alex Gray, which blocks out all the light, one recurring thing is seeing blue and purple and seeing the interaction between the two colors, where it becomes extremely similar to the... Uh, pattern that we see in the Black Lodge of uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks, where there is this zigzag pattern going on and the tension building up between these two colors. And after that, it turns into this uh, blue and purple vortex with a DNA helix in the middle where power is being generated from this uh, force. So to me, I definitely understand what you're talking about here and the potentiality for like what, what exactly this means for humanity. I think it's very fun to get into this and to see where exactly we can go. And me, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, Lev, let me add one thing, Lev. Sure. Um, just to pour some fuel on the fire. All right. There's this other book that I wrote, uh, Iranian Leviathan, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the best relevant here. There, there's a chapter in this book, Iranian Leviathan, which is comically titled uh, Tekel Tekel Mene Shekel. It comes from the, the Old Testament. Book of Daniel. Um, yes. And uh, so anyway, in this book, there's a, a chapter on how Judaism as we know it today was created by a Mithraic elite working under the leadership of Cyrus the Great. Yep. And if you take that book, Iranian Leviathan, and you put it next to Closer Encounters, there are people who might look at certain dichotomies there, dissonances, and think that, what is this, is this guy blatantly contradicting himself? Like, what's going on here, right? Uh, this left hand doesn't seem to know what this right hand is doing here. <laughs> And um, look, read Uberman if you want to see how that thesis and antithesis are reconciled. By the way, they had a high priest named Harkness, who was they thought he was the Messiah when he was living. His last name means from Harkania, where Zoroaster yeah. is from. The, the connections between the Iranian elite and the Kohanim, uh, who, who created basically Second Temple Judaism, um, and who, who basically fielded the first Zionist project in history. I mean, Zionism is an Iranian creation. Yep. I, you know, Perfect. I was branded an Iranian Zionist for saying this in the Iranian language <laughs> media, uh, but it's true. Zionism it's true. is an Iranian project that dates from the rule of Cyrus and Xerxes. In any case, why is this relevant to Closer Encounters? Because the Abrahamic project is not a, an unequivocally negative project. It's not some evil that's out to, you know, totally oppress us and, and warp our minds. 
It is a dialectical challenge. It's a catalytic force. And the Jews in particular are an incubating agent that is unparalleled in this world. Uh, the Jewish elite that developed in a sort of symbiotic relationship with the Mithraic Magi of Hachamanashid Iran are, I think, a David that is indispensable to the battle against the Goliath that we're going to face within the next few decades. So, look, uh, mark those words. Just mark those words somewhere. And uh, well, I could, I could go a step further. I mean, the name Israel, from what I understand, it means to wrestle with God. This is not a passive relationship. In fact, you see various rabbis that constantly argue with God. You know, it's not just this, yes, I'll do whatever you say type of deal. And I think that's been very instrumental in having this spark of creativity and not just taking whatever it is that you're given, but being able to challenge it, being able to put up a good fight. I quoted that passage explicitly in the chapter of uh, Prometheus and Atlas called Mercurial Hermeneutics, uh, you know, namely the, bat, the, the wrestling match with God, um, you know, through which we get the name Israel to strive with God or to endure against God. Uh, and so, yes, there's, so, there, there's something very esoteric and positively diabolical going on there and so you know in the in the uh, let's say vaguely fascist circles in which i traveled at one point um uh when i was involved at you know the highest level in the alt-right there are people who think you know the jews are uh the agents of the devil um to which my response is well uh then i suppose we have the same employer <laughs> Well, again, to me, it all goes back to, and this could be very, you know, pedestrian of me, but it goes back to how do you treat the people uh, that are around you in life? How do you treat your grandmother? How do you treat your parents, your family, uh, your kids? You know, like, are you are you good with them or do you, you know, hit them and abuse them and do horrible things? You know, like that, I think, is important as far as how we treat the people around us, regardless of any of the other stuff. That, I think, is something like my uh, great-grandma, who had a very strict uh, uh, husband, you know, very, like, orthodox Jewish dude, uh, he uh, beat her, you know, he beat her up, and this is, like, way, way, way back in the, uh, you know, Pale of Settlement, yet she was one of the kindest people of all time, like, she brought strangers into her house, even if she didn't know who they were, and, you know, fed them, and, like, made time for anybody you know, going out of her way to do so. And so when I see people like that in the world, that's something that I want to strive to emulate as way as well in, in my own way. And there may be something to the more esoteric uh, Judaic, you know, the Kabbalistic principle of converting this need to constantly receive into being able to give. And that, I think, is a very powerful thing, to be able to give to others without wanting something back in return. Well, I mean, that's part of why I chose Prometheus as the you know, icon and emblem of the movement uh, that, that I've structured my ideas into, uh, because there's no more altruistic religious symbol than that of Prometheus, 
willing to be chained and to endure seemingly eternal torment uh, as a benefactor of humanity. You know, I mean, Prometheus right. is like the ultimate altruistic deity uh, on behalf of human empowerment and enlightenment. So, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that. But at the same time, and I think that that kind of altruism, that kind of compassion needs to be directed toward the individuation of uh, our fellow human beings, toward the, uh, the fostering of a society of strong individuals and people who are empowered to um, cultivate their own potential and uh, to basically you know, pursue their passions and, and define their own destiny. At the same time, while compassion is absolutely necessary, it's a sine qua non uh, for constructing such a society, for, for you know, holding together such a society, a great deal of ruthlessness is also required to defend such a society from being besieged by every kind of enemy that's conceivable, uh, you know, in terms of the majority of the population of this planet and the, the variety of ideologies that uh, these people's minds are enslaved by. Well, with that, we are going to go to Super Chats. So, uh, Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, thank you so much. This has been a quite quite a conversation right here. And before the Super Chat, just want to say again, listen, guys, if you really if you really liked what you heard right now, if you uh, enjoyed the show, what BTR does is I bring in people who otherwise would never have a chance to speak to each other on the same platform. Today was a bit of a different stream with Dr. Giorgiani, but in general, I would bring people in, some of who would come from more of the uh, elite circles of society or whatever you want to call it, with people who are anonymous people on Twitter. And I think it's very important right now for various bubbles that have been formed to be popped I'm not expecting everybody from a particular bubble to go into another one or whatever, but I am expecting there to be certain people who liked being challenged and who want to hear more things that may contradict certain ways that they thought of before, all for the purpose of expanding one's mind. So with that being said, if you want to support Break the Rules, patreon.com slash break the rules is where you go. And I have a lot of very interesting goodies for the people who become patrons. For one thing, there are going to be Patreon-exclusive streams coming up soon. BTR right now is in the process of growth. I got to get a lot of uh, things in order right now in order to do that, but thanks to your help, it shall be done. Another thing that you guys are going to have for the $20 tier, you are going to have very beautiful magnets created by my father, Alexander Polyakov. You can see it on the screen right here. Jason, I'll send you some uh, pictures later so you can see. But they're really, really beautiful magnets created by my father, hand-created uh, maple, mahogany, ashwood, cherry. And uh, my father is a brilliant artist. He was one of the people who really inspired me to uh, create art and animation as well. For the people who are $50 tier patrons, you are going to get a custom magnet, whatever design you want. So if you want a magnet that looks like Prometheus or that looks like a UFO or whatever, uh, my father can create that as well. And if you're a fan of Styx Hexenhammer 666, you are going to get a Styx Dragon uh, wooden sculpture. 
And for the $20 tier, that can also be facilitated. But like I said, $50 patronage gives you a commission of whatever you want within reason. So once again, patreon.com slash break the rules. We're going to be going into super chats right now. So sneed away those super chats. And of course, hit the subscribe button, smash the subscribe button, smash the like button, smash the bell. The bell is extremely important so you get updates on the videos that are going to be coming out from uh, BTR. And with that, we shall go into the super chat. So here we go. Starting from Jay... Can I, can I sign yes. off or stay? stay oh, please stay, please stay if you can. It's going to be yeah, very absolutely. quick. Go yes, ahead. I just want to make sure. Yes, yeah, so because uh, 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 I'm sure all of these are... Uh, uh, anyway... JDJW, $5. How do we prove everything we have learned and understand is true? When it comes to history, the winner of war speaks, and there's been a lot of wars. You want my commentary yes. on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I've argued from Prometheus and Atlas onwards to, to this book, to Closer Encounters. Um, I revisit this argument in detail toward the end of Closer Encounters. Um, that power and knowledge are totally inseparable. The idea of objective scientific knowledge, including knowledge of history, is a total delusion. There never will be such a thing. There will always be a struggle uh, to basically gain a more adequate, uh, more uh, comprehensive and, and uh, uh, cohesive understanding of one or another type of phenomena, whether it's physical phenomena, or the phenomena of history. Um, and that struggle is uh, fundamentally conditioned by political interests and profound psychological motivations. So, you know, I totally agree with Nietzsche and then people like Michel Foucault, who came after him um, in, uh, you know, in uh, seeing various systems of knowledge as expressions of power structures. Therefore, the key to not being ignorantly stuck uh, or, or conditioned unbeknownst to yourself by interests that have shaped one particular power structure is to break out of conformity to any one particular paradigm and to be able to shift between rival paradigms uh, that um, are used as frames of interpretation, whether it's for physical phenomena or for history. And that's something I've been advocating from the time of Prometheus and Atlas onward, that we need to be able to treat paradigms as atlases and to mm. flip in between them. Um, and that's a way we can not escape the power relations that condition systems of knowledge, but we can at least get out from under any one set of them and not be the prisoners of one particular elite or another that wants to forward a master narrative. And before we get to the rest of the Super Chats, I want to say for all the people here who are active on Discord, be sure to join the Break the Rules Discord as well. I put a link in the chat. So here we go. Another one from JDJW5. I think we will progress more as a species by understanding and accepting the past, looking at the possibilities of the future, and focusing on now. That was in all caps. Now from Aaron, $5.00. Would not the void that Jason is postulating as the substance or context for these pluralistic forces not be monism, not be just be monism by another name? Thanks. Absolutely not. Um, 
the void in the sense in which he's defining it is the flip side of the monism that the traditionalists subscribe to unbeknownst to themselves when they frame this eternally perfect uh you know unchanging one they are effectively describing nothing and when you go into the philosophical literature of zen buddhism there there's a complex discussion of this of how what they call shunyata uh, or emptiness in the sense of the lack of any inherent essence is not nothing in the sense of an absolute void, right? Um, an infinity that's eternal would be like turning that inside out is an absolute void. And effectively, I mean, this is a complex thing. You either you're going to wrap your mind around what I'm saying right now, or you're not going to, but in any case, uh, the, the infinite eternal one it's basically nothing that you're talking about at that point. And yes, you could make a legitimate argument that that turned inside out is an absolute void. Not at all the case with what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that order comes out of chaos perpetually, and there's a multitude of finite forces. Some of them come into being at certain points and they pass out of being at other points. And there's always a struggle between these finite forces pan-psychic forces to shape what gets defined as reality from one or another perspective. And that struggle to make order is always a struggle that's taking place from out of a background of chaos. In that picture, there's neither a total nothingness, nor is there a perfect being. Okay. And I would say the position that I'm elaborating is one that further develops the line of thought that Heraclitus set forth. Mm. Very interesting. And we have Diogenes Dago, $5. There is not a text, but there is emojis in the super chat. There is a wolf emoji, followed by a crown, followed by a fire, followed by, I think it's a raining cloud. So take that as you will. I guess he's going pretty ancient Egyptian on us over here because those were the emojis back then. So uh, Derek Sanders, $5. Is Prometheus alive right now or are we awaiting his return? What is so special about December 25th? Well, December 25th was celebrated as the birth of Mithras, um, as uh, uh, the the birth of the deity that the Romans also called Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun, um, and then was appropriated by Christians as the birth date of Christ, who, I mean, if Jesus existed as an individual, was probably more likely born in the spring. Uh, so, you know, it's the uh, winter solstice. And how this person is connecting it to Prometheus, maybe they're thinking of the statue of Rockefeller sent, uh, of Prometheus at Rockefeller Center because... The Christmas tree is put behind the statue of Prometheus at Rockefeller Center around the winter solstice. And the statue of Prometheus at Rockefeller Center also happens to be a statue of Mithra. Uh, the people right. who designed that statue were certain elites who understood that Prometheus is essentially Mithra and that, you know, uh, that Mithraism was a Promethean project. Um, and so is Prometheus alive? Yeah, absolutely. He's alive. That's why we have those people designing statues of Prometheus at Rockefeller Center, because they understand, like I have, as I argued in Prometheus and Atlas onward, that Prometheus is the archetypal or spectral force of technological science. 
That same power of technological science to disrupt and to liberate and to give us the power of the gods, that is Prometheus at work in the world today. And we have another one from JDJW, who, by the way, is the king of the super chat. We have, like, king or queen of the super chat. It's whoever sends the most super chats. Right now, it's JDJW. Congratulations to the total of $20. Uh, and he says, Jason, you are incredibly smart. Gnostic, you are incredibly patient. And everyone I spoke to in chat, uh, so he gives this emoji, the peace sign emoji, and the heart emoji. We are going to be fine no matter what. And then he says for another five dollars lev you're a straight up badass thank you for your work my friend and we have one from jim markstein uh five dollars will you be doing any more classics on a gnostic informants channel the prometheus and zoroaster vids were unbelievable love this channel too lev thank you jim well are you for me yes yes well, of course neil and i are going to continue far into the future maybe we'll do plato next or something Ooh, we'll see yeah i'm down nice and the final super chat here from slinky bopper 999 any chance shrouding yourself in nature provides attributes that shield us from the soul disruption consciousness shackling by these icky entities are the trees our friends hippie intuition protects I love it. I love it. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm going to go with the trees are our friends. <laughs> nice. The trees are our friends. Sure. The trees are definitely my friends too. Yeah. So uh, I have one final question. And Jason, I really appreciate the time that you took to be here. My final question is something that we could expand on uh, on a future stream, but it has to do with the DMT entities. So there is this uh, conversation from Terrence McKenna where he recounted a story that a Tibetan Lama that he gave DMT to referred to these entities as the lesser lights of the Bardo and that this takes you as far as you can go and you can't go any further than that without breaking the thread of return. Beyond this, there is no returning. I've always been very fascinated by that quote, as well as this idea that people have reported of being inside of a DMT landscape that is realer than reality itself. Who are these entities and uh, what exactly is going on there? So that would be my, if I were to do like my own super chat, that would be the super chat that I would ask you before we conclude. Well, in chapter seven of Closer Encounters, I actually make specific reference to Terence McKenna in the context of a discussion of the relationship between DMT and the close encounter phenomenon, uh, in particular, these mantid entities that people see and the reptilian entities that people see in the DMT space. Uh, and long story short, my conclusion is that DMT is some kind of a chemical hack that allows us access to higher reference levels of the quantum computational system that is this cosmos, that we're living inside of not a simulation because simulation implies that there's a reality that's more real than our world. And this world has an inferior reality by comparison to some original, like this is a knockoff and there's some original somewhere. No, I think that it's just the nature of the cosmos to be a quantum computational system. It's an information processing system information like plato's forms you know information processing like process like heraclitus information processing system it's a quantum computer and dmt is like a hack 
into a, a higher, uh, a fifth dimensional navigational matrix within that quantum computational system. And I don't think that it's necessarily the case as the Tibetan may have been implying that the reptilians or mantids or so forth are um, uh, lesser lights. Well, yeah, entities coming from the collective unconscious. Okay, mm -hmm. I think yeah. it's it's quite possible that look uh, if we have developed DMT as a technology, which is really what it is, to hack this system. Well, other species may have done so also, and they may have done so a long time ago. So if reptilians are using DMT to get into the higher reference level of the matrix, then we're going to run into them when we're in there, right? So it could be all kinds of different entities have found a way to access these levels of the quantum computational system that we now are only barely stumbling our way into. And they're more adept, perhaps, in a lot of cases at navigating it than we are. Uh, so that's how I understand DMT in the context mm. of uh, close encounters. I would just add one more thing that I know Neil disagrees with me on. But I think that there is something to be said for utilizing your own willpower in order to get into those particular states of being. Because if you take something, I almost feel like you're knocking down the door prematurely before you're actually ready to see certain things where now at least in my own journey i'm trying to utilize in a very sober state the ability to focus and to uh get into these particular uh realms obviously compared to what would be experienced under dmt it's very small but i think that that humble beginning is going to yield further results the more you do it and frankly speaking i don't think most people end up uh, giving themselves enough time to look into what exactly is possible there, which is, again, brings me to the very beginning of this conversation, why I think it is very important to speak with people such as yourself, uh, Dr. Giorgiani, because you inspire people. You inspire people to look beyond whatever it is that they're used to, to start actually thinking for, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for change instead of just mindlessly consuming whatever it is that they're used to. And that is definitely in the spirit of Break the Rules, which again, thank you so much for coming in. And lastly, we are going to do um, promotions, starting with Neil, Gnostic Informant, the great and powerful Gnostic Informant. What are you working on and where can people find you, my friend? Oh, you can find me at youtube.com slash Gnostic Informant. I'm currently working on a video right now showing the, the different dying and rising gods in the agricultural sense that predate Christianity. And, um, you know, there's different, there's Addis, there's uh, Adonis, Ashman, who is from the Phoenicians. His name means oil. He's an oiling, he, he's a healer, an oiler, he's like Asclepius, um, you know, Dionysus, uh, Osiris. But I'm not doing it. I'm not just going to say, oh, they were all born on December 20th. I'm going to show you what really matters between these, not these little traits that people, no, there's, there's actually something going on there. There's something real important going on there with these deities, but. You'll see that coming up. Nice. And uh, Dr. Reza, uh, Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, uh, please let us know where we can find you. And you've mentioned the book that you're working on, but I think it's uh, important to mention them one more time. So I am working on the conclusion of the trilogy that uh, began with Faustian Futurist and continued with Uberman. 
Uh, and it's going to be a very unusual ending of the trilogy because it will be, um, while it does conclude that arc, it's a work of nonfiction uh, and a philosophical work. And that should be out before too long. And people can find me at either jasonrezzagiorgiani.com uh, or prometheism.com. jasonrezzagiorgiani.com, which links to my YouTube and Twitter and other things, uh, or prometheism.com. Excellent. And with that, there's going to be a stream on Monday along with Neil. Neil is back, and that's going to be our Christian Varieties Heretical, and that's going to be with Inspiring Philosophy. So all you guys, uh, check that out. And this is it. Thank you guys so much for watching. Be sure to smash that like button, smash the subscribe button, put the, the, you know, the bell icon in effect because that's very important for the algorithm. And also share this with everybody, you know, your friends, dogs, cats. You know, cats are watching YouTube now, so share it with them. And thank you guys so much for watching. Patreon.com slash Break the Rules. Join the Discord again so that we can talk more. I'm going to be very active in the Discord. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you guys so much for watching. Mwah. Good night, everybody. 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 Mwah.